Hello, good people. Here is an editor's note right off the top. For some reason, this show loves tech issues. We did have a few. We worked it out. Hopefully that does not get in the way of this wonderful episode. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Yeah, what uh, are you wearing? The Mel- your Melvin's uh, metal up your yeah, no, so your so Melvin's Metallica so shirt. Yeah, so I love the Melvins and you know that. <laughs> but it's also coming up year three of when I got hit by that truck. Right. So like, oh, I'll wear something commemorating one because that was just the only song that was in my head when I was laying in the hospital in severe pain. Right. So I was like, but I'll, I'll wear the Melvin version. But I do have the Metallica version that I'm wearing the Melvin's Day. So. <laughs> nice. Are they are they friendly with the Metallica guys? Ooh, I, I don't think they're that friendly. But um, uh, Buzz Osborne, who's I guess the head guy in the band. He said that Lulu was their greatest album. So. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I love Lulu. Is it their greatest album? It, it, it is up there for me, but it's not their greatest album. He's <laughs> just trying to be interesting. I get it. He's just yeah. trying to do an interesting interview. <laughs> he is kind of a troll. So. <laughs> I mean, what's a more interesting answer, Ride the Lightning or Lulu? I mean, what's what's got more juice in it? Right. And maybe actually, he even maybe he even really means it too. I mean, who knows? I think knowing him, I think he actually does sincerely mean it. <laughs> it's almost like an it's almost like an insult to Metallica, you know. He's like, hmm. Let me try to say something. Yeah, he's like, let me try to say something nice about them. Well, Lulu was pretty good. That's probably what it was, actually. That's messed up. I know. I really like Lulu, but that I can see that too. That's kind of messed up. <laughs> I know the Melvins are such like a cool band. I could see them, you know, <laughs> them not really thinking Metallica is very cool. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> He's kind of like a crotchety old guy too. So yeah, I could see him being like Lulu's their coolest record and the rest of their catalog sucks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Like, what about Master of Puppets? They're like, oh, it's crap. Like, wow. Okay. Well, we could do better than that. Lulu is where it's at. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good day, good afternoon, good evening, good night, good people, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Music and We. I am Jamila, and today we have a special guest, Clint Wells. I want to say the email address right now because we always have it in the description, but people don't always read descriptions, so I just want to be clear. You can contact us. The address... We would love to hear from you. Music and we JJ, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's music and we JJ at gmail.com. So now we're going to go with the show. I'm sure you've heard the name Clint Wells if you've listened to this podcast because we have mentioned you, Clint, on this podcast. We have mentioned Metal Up Your Podcast 
if you haven't, here is an introduction. While there's 50 billion podcasts floating around in the ether at this point in time, there is a little podcast that Clint hosts. It's one of my favorite podcasts, Metal Up Your Podcast, which has been going since January 2017 and was one of the earliest Metallica-themed shows in this era of how many of us consume media. In the middle of hosting and producing Metal Up Your Podcast, or M-U-Y-P, Clint has been a longtime songwriter and professional musician who has toured and performed with artists such as Chris Stapleton, Bob Schneider, Rodney Atkins, and most recently, Morgan Wade. Most importantly, Clint is a loving husband and father, something I'm sure that is a very humbling experience for you. <laughs> I need to have you just come introduce me every morning to my family. That's what, <laughs> that's what I need, especially the loving father and husband part. See? I can then tell my wife, see? <laughs> so this is actually where i want to start because i'm always interested in when people first learn that they're going to be a parent what sort of ranges of emotions did you experience when you first heard that news did you experience a typical reality sort of the faces of grief that people experience or was it supreme joy or was it a combination of all of that was there trepidation were there any reservations you had that melted away once you got to see and hold what could be seen as a material expression of love? Wow. Well, no, it was pretty horrible news for us at the time, which I think that happens to a lot of people. I don't think that's actually represented enough in these conversations because my wife and I were smart enough to know what um, I mean, how it was going to affect us. I mean, it was going to change everything forever. And I was 29 my wife was 27 and we were in what i would describe as a rocky patch of our marriage uh, we'd been together for a while we just moved to nashville and we'd been in nashville for a couple of years we bought our like things were moving but i think we were experiencing kind of the first big the first big obstacle of of like you know the the serotonin the dopamines calming back down i was traveling a lot she was working in a restaurant with a bunch of shitheads we just, I felt like we still had more room to grow before we were going to do that. And she agreed. I mean, she would, she would be nodding along with me right now. So when we got pregnant, it was a surprise. It was kind of a horrible evening, to be honest. And, and this is juxtaposed. I'll just jump ahead real quick for people who may not know me. I mean, my daughter is about to turn 10. She's the best thing that's ever happened to us. Like my family is in the best place we've ever been. So I'm just trying to, so everything worked out <laughs> before people get too bummed here. But uh, it was it was awkward because my mother-in-law was visiting from from Huntsville, Alabama, who I love dearly. She's a sweet woman. And she just happened to be staying with us. And so we we maybe couldn't act out the news the way we might have if she weren't there. But I'm also a very honest person. that It's very hard for me to lie. So uh, Isabel basically told me sort of mournfully, hey, you know, I took a test and I'm pregnant. And my first thing I said was we need to take another test just to make sure, you know. She was like, oh, I knew you were going to say that and I already did that. And it's also positive. So this is happening. And it was like, wow. And I think her mom was just about to walk in. You know, we were all going to go to dinner. And so we had a few little private moments. And I don't want to offend anybody out there, but terminating the pregnancy is something that's on the table for both my wife and I, um, you know, conceptually. But she was not interested. You know, she in a previous relationship, she'd already done that before and, and decided that that's not for her. And 
So, I, but I, I brought it up. I said, you know, is this something we want to do? It was a very short conversation. She basically said, no, I'm doing this with or without, you know, your participation. And of course, I wanted to keep my family. You know, it, that was a very quick combo, but I felt like we had to have it. And man, yeah, I told her, I said, listen, I'm going to need to be sad about it for a little while. And uh, I said, but if you give me that time and let me grieve and be sad, I think I'm going to be okay. Like, uh, you know, I'm pretty good at just accepting. So it, it took a few months, you know, it, it really did take a few months of me thinking. And, you know, I was such a selfish little shithead. I mean, one of the great things about having kids for someone like me that tends to be a little self-centered is it, it really was the first force in my life that forced me to care about something as much as myself, other than myself. My, you know, my spouse didn't even do that. I saw my marriage and my intent with my spouse almost as an extension of self-love. It's like, oh, this person makes me happy and I love them and I want them. So I'm going to marry them. The kid thing is completely different, you know, and, and, uh, so I did, you know, I did, I thought about it a lot and I was worried about what it was going to mean for me making music. And I was worried I was going to have to get off the road. And I just didn't know what it meant. I was just so naive when I think about that dude. And, um, but I put it all where it went and like three months in and she did her own version of it too. I mean, she was bummed too because we had planned to have kids, but this was a few years ahead of schedule. So, I mean, she was working in a restaurant. I was touring in rock bands. So it was, just felt impossible. But like most families out there, you figure it out and put one, you know, one day in front of the other and, and it went great. You know, like I got it. We started to get excited about being parents and now we, we talk about it and we're like, can you, can you remember those two idiots we were before? Not that people without kids are idiots, but we were idiots. We didn't know anything. I don't know. We had three dogs. We traveled a lot. We were just, we had no money. And we thought our life was kind of challenging. You know what I mean? It's just so many, so much perspective that the kid brings us. So anyway, that's kind of a long answer to that. But, you know, no one's ever really asked me that. But it really was kind of a horrible dawning. And um, I think that's okay. You know, it, it's, I think we took it seriously. You know, I, I think people need to take it a little more seriously, actually. Um, it changes everything. And for us, it was for the better. And for me, it definitely, I mean, a lot of my identity now has shifted from guy who plays guitar, guy in a band, guy who makes art, blah, 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 to I'm a dad, you know, I feel like a dad first. And that's made me a better man. And even when I'm on the road as a, as a 40 year old now, I've, I used, when I first started touring, I was the young guy. Now I'm the guy that's, you know, now I'm kind of the older guy, but um, I'll seek out other dads. Or, or moms, you know, if, if the, like women are around in my touring capacities too. And that's really what I want to talk about is uh, our kids, what it's like being parents on the road. And, and, and um, really what I talk about the most with other parents is, is grieving the end of it. Um, so that it kind of full circle almost. I, I have a lot of low level, low hum dread about, you know, not being my daughter's dad. I mean, I know I'll be her dad, but I mean. Her, her becoming the woman she's going to be and, and moving on in the world and, and her starting her own family and, and have, being independent. You know, now she depends on me for everything. I'm her favorite person. And it's been, I've just been so wrapped up in it for nine, 10 years. I'm, I'm already, and I only got about eight more, you know, eight to 10 more. So it's halfway over already. And so now I'm, I'm kind of getting ready to be sad about that part, which is kind of poetic in a way, I guess. So you did talk about the ways being a parent has matured you. What ways has this experience birthed life into you? Mm. 
Well, I didn't know. I didn't know I could love something so much. I really didn't. You know, I, I, I might have said I loved my wife beyond words or I loved music beyond words because I do like I have this lifelong love of music and a very interesting spiritual connection to music that I know a lot of us have. And I love my wife. You know, my wife is, you know, she's she until my daughter, she was the most important person in the world to me. But nothing really prepared me for what the love I have for my daughter. And it comes with a bunch of fear too. Like, man, if something happened to her, I don't know what I would do. Like, I'm not getting up and going to work. <laughs> you know, I'm not pay I'm not filing my taxes with TurboTax. You know, like the world would completely end if something happened to her. So there's like a lot of fear and responsibility in that, but that's the flipped coin side of the love, you know? Like it just really and you know what, to answer your question, I actually should have just answered it this way. It made me love other things more. You know, because my my capacity to love grew. It's not like I found hidden love. And I was like, oh, this goes to my daughter. You know, it's like I loved my dogs. I loved my wife. I loved my music. But it's just that my heart grew. Everything grew. So I was able to love things more. You know, I even lo love music more, love films more, love my friends more. Um, I'd be on a plane hearing a crying baby and I fly a lot for my job and I have for like 20 years. And, you know, you know how we all feel about the crying baby on the plane. It's It sucks. <laughs> you know, it's. It's like one of the most unpleasant, like, I think we're evolved to hear a crying baby and it's supposed to, you know, like an ice pick get into our psyche because that's how we survived in caves for, you know, 50,000 years is you had to hear your baby crying and, and to survive. And, uh, but what it's made me do now is when I hear a crying baby on the plane, I'm not saying I love it because I don't like that sound, but I, I, I almost love the kid because this is a kid who's a human being just like me and you and their ears are popping and they don't understand what's happening to them and they can't tell anybody what's happening to them. And I, I feel like empathy for that in a way I never did. And I, and I love their parents too, because I know what their parents are going through and everyone's like, can't you just make your kid be quiet? And sometimes they can't, you know, it's like, I never knew that, you know, and maybe it's good. Maybe you don't have to be a parent to like have that kind of empathy, but that's what it did for me. Because I was pretty self-involved before that. It just makes me love these people more. I have, a, I have a friend who doesn't have kids. And he's kind of one of the typical, like, God, I hate kids. You know, they're, he, him and his partner are never going to have kids. And that's great. I think more people should pursue that. But, it, you know, I would talk to him about it. I'm like, man, don't you, some, don't you hear yourself in that kid screaming? And like, because the kid is in pain or, you know, and can't tell anybody. Can you just imagine it? And it's like, you know, how can you hate the kids? Like, you were that kid. You, that was you not that long ago. Like, I know we're all in our mid forties now, but 40 years was not a long time ago. I mean, snap your fingers and you were that kid who just didn't have the tools to, to soothe. So anyway, that sounds kind of bullshitty, but I really mean it. I, I, I really, that's how it's really changed me and, and, and given me spark and given me more love and empathy. Oh, that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. You were talking a little bit about, navigating being a parent you touched on it in terms of that with your touring so what are some ways you have been able to do that well i mean having technology has made it great i mean i gotta say being able to facetime my daughter from paris you know <laughs> before she goes to bed is like you know a luxury that a lot of people in my position have never had so I try to be grateful for it but it sucks it's hard because you know, there's a very small percentage of people in doing art, as you know, who are getting rich from it. So it's not like I'm shoring up an empire to give my daughter. 
you know, I'm just making a living and paying my bills and, and it, it's what I love, but it also, it costs a lot because it takes me away from what I love, which is my family and being home. And, and, you know, the, the further I lurch into fatherhood, I do have more, more dark nights of the soul wondering like, am I making a really, am I making the best decision for my family? I just don't know anymore, you know, but it's kind of a little too late to pivot and, you know, I need to go do my job so I can support my family. So, but those are the things I think about. And, and but the, you know, the thing is, she's never known me in a different way. She's never known me as a guy that that was home for a long time. I mean, we had the COVID years, which was really we bonded so much in that time because it was the first time I was home that much. And you know, I was teaching her first grade remotely f- from our house, and we were going on walks every day. I mean, it was really we really made the best of that time in such a scary time for so many people. But she's always known me as a guy that comes and goes. And so it sounds cliche, but you just I try to maximize my time when I'm home. I try to really be present. I try not to be in my phone. I don't go out. I'm not extremely social. I mean, we we spend a lot of time together when I'm home. You know, it's not it's not perfect, but it's that's kind of the rhythms that we get into. And my wife is super supportive too, because all she's ever known of me as in our relationship is me being gone too, or me me having pockets of home and away. So we have a pretty good muscle for it. I mean, I, f- I feel like we've been okay. I do feel like some of my dread about the parenthood ending is this guilt about, you know, did I, was I foolish to spend that 20 years gone half the time? Mm-hmm. And really, I won't know that until it happens. I have a, a suspicion that it's going to be <clears throat> a pretty rough feeling. And, I, you know, Hope and hopefully me and Nova are friends and we can talk about it and uh we can we can put it where it goes and maybe I'll maybe I'll need to apologize. Maybe she'll have to forgive me. I I don't know. I mean I'm I really am one of these guys out there like you and like a lot of my friends that I'm just kind of doing the best I can. Yeah. For sure. So when people compare their songs, their creations to children, do you think that's something that's accurate now that you have been a parent for a while? Yeah, I think it's like we use all sorts of language to make sense of what we're doing. And I think it I think it's um, a metaphor is such a powerful tool that makes us different than any other animal, you know, and and uh, you can tell someone like my songs are like my kids and then we can immediately understand, you know, or someone, you know, I have friends who don't have children, but they 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 are very passionate pet owners and they'll say, you know, my pets are like my kids, like they're they're a part of my family. There's an interesting enmity between, you know, parents generally hate that when people say, well, my dog's my child. You know what I mean? Parents really don't love that. And then the people that don't have children really don't like the parents being sanctimonious about that they got naked and laid on each other and made a kid like millions and trillions of people have done for like, it's not hard to make a kid. It does not make you special, you know? (laughs) A lot of shitheads have kids. Um, but I think, so, you know, there's going to always be a a division there where we're going to annoy each other. But I think right past that is uh, the use of metaphor. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I love metaphor. I love poetic language because it really like locks home something kind of eternally true about what we're all going through together. Whether you have kids or not, we're all just human beings that are going to, we're alive, which means we feel pain and we're going to die, which is sad. And we know we're going to die. And that's like one of the most horrible things ever. It's the price we pay to have comedy and art and music and laughter. Animals don't have it. Animals don't know they're going to die. 
So we're like the only species that kind of understands what that the that we're in a game and it's rigged. And so with that comes great pain and irony and suffering, but also the ability to laugh at it. And so language like that is just useful, especially in a creative world. I mean, what would poetry be without being able to talk about the sunset and the sunrise? Even though most of us should know the sun ain't moving. <laughs> we're move- the sun <laughs> stays. We move around the sun. The sun's not rising and setting. It's an illusion. And it's beautiful, you know? So I get it when people say, well, my songs are my little babies. It just means you cherish them. You you feel ownership of them. And and uh, and like kids, you have to let them go, too. I think there's really great, useful... It's a utility to, to use poetic language. Who are some writers outside of music that inspire your own writing or just people you enjoy reading? Man, um, I thankfully am out of the phase where I'm trying to write like my favorite writers. I mean, I went through a whole, uh, everyone has to do it. You have to do it. Like I remember when I got into Charles Bukowski, I was writing poetry like him and, you know, I got into Henry Miller because of Bukowski and I wanted to write like all those like twenties writers. I wanted to write like Ezra Pound and, Hemingway and you kind of write if you keep writing I think you write out of that and and then in my own songwriting I know this guy you can't talk about anymore but I didn't know any of this shit at the time but a lot of my songs were like this guy Ryan Adams who's a sort of troubadourish singer-songwriter guy from New York and a lot of my songs sounded like Ryan Adams you know B and C sides because I just had to write through it to find my voice but and I was always sort of reading, looking for a voice. In my 20s, it was like a lot of my reading was me trying to find something. And now I read less, but I read more purely, you know? Like, so I used to love this guy, Wendell Berry, when I was very religious. He's this agrarian writer from Kentucky who I love. But I'm the guy I read now is a guy named Raymond Carver, who's really similar. A lot of, a lot of his writing is about family and about being outside, which sounds horrible, trust me. I know, but it's just, he died of cancer and he wrote a lot about when he was dying and he wrote a lot about his daughter. And so I'm, of course, his age when he was writing a lot of this with a daughter. So I'm resonating with it. But, you know, I mean, I I read a lot of like Clive Barker and Anne Rice and Stephen King and pulpy, scary stuff. I was pretty voracious reader in my 20s. So I was kind of trying to gobble all of it up. Now, what am I now? I'm reading. I read a lot of nonfiction. Of course, of course, I'm probably a lot like you. I mean, I've read every book about all my favorite bands, you know, <laughs> I just can't get enough. I've read like 50 books about the Beatles, you know, any Metallica book I've read. Um, I've read like 25 books about Woody Allen. He's one of my favorite directors. I know you can't talk about him anymore, but, um, <laughs> you know, I don't know what these shitheads are up to in their personal lives. I just like the crap they make, you know. But I would probably say I would probably say Raymond Carver now more than anything influences me because he moves me. And that's just a stage of life thing. I think in your 20s, you get all, you, yeah, 20s, you're, you're completely enthralled with someone like Bukowski. It's just such a shocking read. He's just such an ugly, kind of ugly and beautiful at the same time person. And he'll, he's just shocking, you know, how plainly he'll, he'll talk about what he's going through. Did you have an experience with Bukowski? My favorite piece that he wrote, and I actually had the book that had it in it. It was a very short piece and he was talking about being on the train and he he just had this conversation with this kid. It was so basic and I wish I could remember it you know, verbatim, but obviously I can't. 
I just thought to myself, this is why people like Bukowski. It was so plainly spoken. Yeah. Well, he, you know, he's known for being kind of a womanizing, boozy. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was kind of comes from the beat world, but he was in California. So I, I find the beat stuff unreadable. It was interesting when I was young, but like Ginsburg and Kerouac, I, I just, I, it's not for me. It's, and that's actually the nicest thing I can say about it is that it, I, it's not for me, honestly. Bukowski, all the, all the pulpy stuff, I could, him gambling and shit, him fucking prostitutes. I could do without it. I really could. What I love about it is kind of what you talked about, even though you can't remember the story, is kind of just how blunt and frank and plain he could be about human emotion. One of my favorite pieces of his is called Tabby Cat. And he's just hmm. talking about this young boy, a teenager with these two teenage girls. And he's talking about how he's aged out of having really anything to look forward to when it comes to just enjoying being naked with with people. You know, like... You know, there's a time in a man's life and maybe a woman's too, where you you realize you're not those pleasures of life are less available to you. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of life. And this it sounds kind of shallow. It doesn't come off shallow. I'm not really doing it justice. But that's what it's called. It's called Tabby Cat. It's in a book of his called Pleasures of the Damned, if anyone wants to find it. He wrote a lot about cats. He was a big cat lover. And he would cats. I mean, I'm telling you, he wrote a thousand poems about him just being alone in a room listening to Stravinsky. He was a big classical music lover. And he would always have his cats around him. And, and just the loneliness and grief of the soul. That's the stuff that I like. Now, his love is a dog from hell. And he wrote a whole novel called Women. And he was a pretty lascivious, kind of gross guy. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but like most people, who you know, that wasn't all of him. And it was complicated. And I think a lot of that was punched up because he was actually kind of lonely and didn't have a lot of female you know interaction in his life so he dreamed up this world where he's a he's some sort of sex hero it, it's all kind of sad you know yeah it's very but i gotta tell you if anyone out there hasn't heard of raymond carver he writes he writes short stories novels and poetry and it's just uh man it's such beautiful stuff that's that's what i'm loving mostly but you know i, I don't know about you but as i've gotten older i, I read less and i've, I've mm -hmm. been trying to make peace with that because it's made me sad you know what happens when i read now i get sleepy that's like the, uh, yeah. it's the easiest way to, for me to go to bed early is like to start reading. Well, I used to read three books at a time and yeah. post accident, I can only do one at a time now. Right. And I used to be able to I, I was also a very voracious reader and I used to just gobble up a book. I could read a, a whole book in one sitting and now I have to do chapter by chapter. Same. And yeah, it's very interesting. I think part of it is the influx of technology, the internet, all of these other figures in our lives technologically. I think that is part of it. I don't, obviously I can't speak for you. I can't speak for everyone, but I think our access to all of these things uh, makes books in general less appealing. Yeah. They, um, also people read books online. I have trouble with doing that. I know people have Kindles, people have this. I need a physical copy of a book. I am the same way. And I, I agree with you. I think it's, uh, you know, I was thinking about this last night. I was watching a basketball game and I was like scrolling on my phone while watching it. And, and uh, ah. well, because there was like there was like a forum of people talking about the game. But then like mm -hmm. a commercial break would happen or a free throw would happen. And I would look at other shit. And, and my daughter came in while I was doing that. And I was like, oh, I don't want her to see me do it. I felt like a junkie, you know. Hmm. And. I, I was thinking about like, you know, when I was like 23, 
I had a normal day job and, and uh, I would look forward to getting off where I would come home from work. I would make myself a little dinner. And then I, I had this chair in my, I lived in a house with a bunch of other gnarly musician dudes in my early twenties. And I had this chair in my room. Like all I had in my room was like a desk, a bed and a chair and a couple of records, but I had this chair and I would just sit and read. Yeah. I would like read a book. I'd read a whole book, you know, and I looked forward to it and I would just read until I got tired. It just felt, it was just a simpler, it sounds so dumb. It was just a simpler time. And now I would say I'm pretty cognizant of how uh, my technology is really bad for me, mainly because I, I don't want my daughter to experience it. And I'm still sucked into it. Like, it, you know, it, and I would consider myself slightly more aware of the dangers of it. Like, I have family members that don't consider any of it dangerous. I think it's awesome. Like, why would you think your the phone's awesome? What do you mean your phone's bad for you? But my wife and I are like having actual conversations about like, hey, we need to codify some sort of ethic around like treating this almost like food, like nutrition, you know? And we're still zombies. So it's like, man, we're fucked. I mean, I, it's hard to be optimistic about that, you know? Yeah, I I have time for myself every day where I sit and I don't use any tech like computers and I'll just sit and read. So I made sure to have a commitment to do that. I also, when I am eating, I will read books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there there are things that I set for myself where I'm like, okay, laptop down, none of that. Is it hard? And I, No, it's actually not that hard. And I honestly don't really look at my phone that much. It's over where sometimes I forget where it is. And then people will text me. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I know we've all been in situations where for whatever reason we didn't have our phone and we like left the house or it mm -hmm. died or couldn't <laughs> charge it. And I think we've all by this point had the feeling of the panic when you can't because, you know, some of it's not bad. Some of it's like I, I just want to make sure my wife can get a hold of me or yes. I need to be able to use my maps to get home safely or whatever it is. But after the junky thing fades, yeah, you 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 kind of land on this like plateau where you're like, oh, not only am I fine, this is nice. Like I remember mm -hmm. doing something where I didn't have my phone for like two days, but I think I was with my family. So I wasn't worried about if they were okay. So I had that benefit. But you know, like a lot of my work is like, I'll get emails and texts about shit that's kind of time. Like, hey, can you send a mix of this? Or hey, uh, are you available to write uh, for this? And and uh, so, I, I, you know, I'm kind of always connected to it because so much of my, like my wife's work ends at five and right. after five, she's not checking her work email until 8 a.m. And I'm like, man, that sounds great. Like I, I have this fantasy. Of, <laughs> I have this fantasy of working at Home Depot, like just quitting the music <laughs> industry because it just seems so nice. Like <laughs> I'll just learn everything about, you know, the, the, the dishwashers, the Bosch dishwashers. <laughs> and I'll just help people buy dishwashers all day. I'll know exactly what I'm getting paid. I'll know exactly what my insurance is. And when I clock out at five from Home Depot, I'm gone. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about Home Depot anymore. But when I'm there, I'm here to help. What are you looking for? Yeah, the, the wood screws, aisle 17. I would just learn what all the aisles are. You know, have pretty good memory. Like, I, you know, I've been cramming like music facts in my brain my whole life and learning I was in a cover band for 10 years, learned every solo, every background vocal. I could just er delete all of that information, put in Home Depot aisle knowledge, and then just work at Home Depot. I actually fantasize about it sometimes. How weird is that? 
given you have spent so much time as a touring musician, that does make sense. <laughs> I, I think that makes that would make sense to a lot of people. <laughs> I'm serious. It sounds it, nice. You know, it's it's sort of the grass is greener theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, True. Yeah. <laughs> but here's a, a philosophical, I guess, question. So, do you think there's a space for anyone? who wants it, especially artist types such as ourselves, to find the type of positive love one feels for a friend or a partner or child. This isn't a guarantee that everyone will experience this love, but do you think we live in a society that is open to the capacity of these types of love, or is it something we all have to work hard at in finding? Hmm. You mean like the love of like, yeah, a part, you mean just that, that, the deep connection of love? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not a philosopher um, <laughs> and I've read less than I did 10 years ago, but I think that's built in, you know, I think it's, I could really talk for a long time about what I think makes us special and, uh, and I'm not a religious person. So, you know, a lot of what's special about us has been explained by my religious friends as like, well, yeah, well, God made us a certain way. Actually, God made us kind of like him and his image. And that's why we're special. And I don't really have any of that, you know? So, and I don't know how we got to the point where we, we broke off, you know, from the other apes where we said, Oh, it's sad when our, you know, we part, we, we pair bond and then our partner gets sick and dies. We, we, you know, we're the, we're the only species that has funerals and, mm -hmm. and, and we build rituals around things like death and uh, birthdays and and uh, we understand that we're alive and we're going to die and part of that is is loving something you know like i know that there are animals like elephants that are monogamous their whole life and that when their partner dies they they grieve like you know they become depressed like i i'm not saying that we have cornered the market on that but <laughs> i think that that's just a fundamental part like the the love and attachment that we feel and the way we do our families and the way that we long to even be with our families after death. I mean, that's what a lot of our mythologies are about, you know, is, is explaining, uh, imbuing meaning into death. And, and then this idea that like, well, there's an after party and uh, everyone I love will be there and I'll get to be young again and everything will be okay. And I really have a lot of empathy for that. And, and I used to be angrier about religion um, because I, I just think it's been such a destructive force. Uh, plainly has been in history, but on a, on a person to person level, I really get it. And, uh, sometimes even wish I had something like that, you know, because my worldview when it comes to that is pretty tough. I, I don't have a lot of really great answers for the big questions, you know, who are we and where do we come from and where are we going and what does it all mean? I don't, I don't really know, you know? So all I really have is this idea of like, well, you get your time here and you need to spend it helping people and not hurting people. And if you get to be in fall in love with things and and love your partners or your friends or kids or pets, or you get to love your record collection or you get to love your local community or even if you get to love your politician that I might not think is very cool. I think that's kind of the cream of, of life, you know, is, is having that love. I think that's what makes us human. Ah, indeed. As you watch Nova, your daughter grow, I know you want to encourage her to find her own path. I know that you want to encourage her to explore things in her own way, to find things that give her joy. For me, uh, writing and playing music were things that I've loved to do for a long time and still do. Uh, but no one in my family has a musical bone in their body, mm -hmm. except I, I think my sister. <laughs> 
my sister is a DJ and I think I'm the only person who has played in bands and plays several instruments. So like, nobody in my family is musically inclined. Did you have a parent or other adult figure or guardian in your family who encouraged to help you in your musical growth or your artistic growth? Yeah, my grand. Uh, yeah, I- I'll talk about my grandmother. But first of all, let me say, hey, being a DJ, no offense to DJs or your sister, but you <laughs> you play like multiple instruments and write music. That's different than DJing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I don't know how to DJ. DJing is a skill I don't know. But I it do want to say, I-, I think that I think there is a separation there. You might be the only one in your family <laughs> that's musically talented. You know what I mean? Because most people can't play multiple instruments. Uh. I had a grandfather who collected guitars. He he wasn't really a great player. I think I think he collected guitars because he wasn't a great player. I think that was his way of he just surrounded himself with great guitars as a hobby almost to sort of make up for that he could never really just sit there with a crappy guitar and play great. And he loved great. He loved Hank Williams. He loved like kind of the great early American songwriters. He was into Buck Owens and mm-hmm. you know Grand Ole Opry stuff. He was he lived in Montgomery, Alabama. He was he's the dude of his time, you know. He would take me to the Hank Williams Museum because Hank Williams is from Montgomery and died, you know, uh, well, he died on the way back to Montgomery in a car. But there's a really cool museum there with like the car that Hank Williams died in and some of his suits, mm-hmm. like these, you know, those Grand Ole Opry, like crazy, like seersucker suits. And there's a couple of his guitars and cases from like the 40s and 50s. And like a guitar would just have a hole in it, like a huge hole. And I, I was like, Granddaddy, what? what's going on there? What happened to the guitar? And my grandfather used to go see Hank Williams in like pubs in Montgomery, Alabama. And he was like, oh, I mean, one second he'd be singing, you know, uh, Lovesick Blues. The next minute he'd be smashing his guitar with someone's head in a bar fight. Because this was like rough. (laughs) You know, the South could be rough, you know. So he loved music. But, you know, he was like a lot of grandparents of that time. He didn't pay me a lot of attention. He doesn't have tools. You know, like when I started playing music, he... I know that meant something to him, but it's not like he would sit me down and be like, dear grandson, you're carrying on the lineage of Wells men who love, you know, he didn't know how to talk to me. So he would like give me a guitar or he would, my grandmother would be like, Clint, come in here and play something. But you know, when I was 13, I was playing Metallica song. I wasn't playing. She was like, you know, any Pat Boone songs you can play? I was like, I don't know any Pat, you know what I mean? It would be shit like that. I'm like, I, I, and I would try to play like pretty, passages from like pink floyd or like dave matthew like whatever i was playing when i was 13 <laughs> i'd probably play the intro to fade to black like something pretty but he didn't know how to talk to me and he didn't teach me anything really he just um when we would go to his house i mean he would have have 20 uh, of these like vintage martins and gibsons just on stands and we weren't even really allowed to touch them but that's one of my, like a very like you know fundamental memory of mine is just seeing guitars and and being drawn to them because they he had these beautiful, you know he had a couple of Martin D45s. They're these really opulent looking dreadnought guitars that have like 900 pieces of like abalone pearl. They're they're like shiny, you know. They're like six thousand, ten thousand dollar guitars. He had a couple of those just laying around, and he wasn't even a wealthy dude. Like they lived in a tiny little Montgomery, Alabama kind of bungalow type house. It wasn't. You know, I don't know how he did all this. You know what I mean? He was kind of smart. And I don't I don't know. I really don't know. He's still kind of a mystery to me. He passed away years ago. But so that's all I had. I mean, my parents liked music. My mom liked Bon Jovi and my dad liked Pink Floyd. But 
none of them were ever talented and they didn't know, they didn't even really know how to help me when I obviously expressed like deep interest and, uh, you know, a, a lot of commitment to it at a young age. The best I can say that they did is they never, they never made fun of me for it. <laughs> and they, they tried to buy me instruments when they could. So like, you know, they would, they would scrounge up and buy me like the, the level up guitar. Or if I wanted the Marshall amp that was as big as my friends down the street, they would save. And instead of the PlayStation that year, I would get the Marshall valve state, whatever, 30. And then of course now they love it. They come to all my shows and they think I'm a rock star. It's so funny. My mom will, I'll, when I was with Rodney Atkins, we would be playing like whatever the fucking frog festival and the whatever <laughs> county some bullshit and uh she would she would rent a white van like a pa 15 passenger like a touring van and she would get all of her friends and they would all you know come to the shows she would <laughs> she would ask for like 15 tickets i'm like mom that's not usual I, it's gonna be hard for me to get you 15 tickets usually good for two or three <laughs> but but she's proud of me you know like I think they were surprised. I think they were, I think if you asked them, they'd be like, well, first of all, not surprised because this kid was a little music maniac. But B, surprised that it panned out, you know? It's just such a tough... You know, if Nova wanted to do it, I think I would... I think it would be hard for me because it's such a tough industry to really thrive in. And I, I want her to be successful and be able to take care of herself. Right. Um, Isabel and my wife and I were even talking this the other day about like, if she has a partner, what's that person going to be like? And we were like, well, we hope that they're successful, you know, like successful people, not just financially, but as people. My reaction to that was like, I want her to be successful on her own so that she doesn't need a partner. So that if she wants a partner, it will be because that's what she wants and not because it's something she needs. So these are the kind of conversations we're having. And I don't know if music's, you know, I don't know if music's what I want for her. I want her to be able to play music because it's something you can do your whole life and it's it's spiritual and it's it's important. But pursuing it, you know, vocationally is a tough road. And I'm not saying she couldn't do it because she's a girl. It's nothing like that. It's like I would say the same thing to a son. It's just such a tough road. When you were looking at your grandfather's guitars, was that a moment that led you to thinking, I know you're, you're talking about your daughter, it's hard to pursue, but for you in that journey at that moment when you're looking at the guitars, did you say, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life or at least the majority of it? No, I never had one of those. <laughs> I never could, I could never envision the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I have a very, uh, I, I still have this to this day, like long-term plans I find difficult to conceptualize. Like my wife is such a great counterpart for me in, in terms of thinking about like, saving money and uh man she's just she thinks long term she's like yeah but what about when we're 60 and i'm like 60 i'll be dead i've just always thought i was going to be dead or something i, I just never mm. i could never imagine myself 20 years down the line you know and, and that that plays into like decisions i made about everything like you know pretty i was a pretty bright kid but didn't do well in school because i was like school sucks what this i want to listen to pearl jam i don't i don't care i just didn't think about you know and then when I was like, when I was college age, I went to a Bible college because I was just passionate at the time about that. And then I was in a band and then I just went to community college because I just needed to get credits while I was goofing off playing. I just have never been good at that. So 
you know, when I would look at a guitar or even when I started playing a guitar, I remember the, the one of the first things that someone showed me was my I had a friend who was playing guitar, but he was a lot better. He was like six months ahead of me and he just wanted to play solos because that's what you want to do when you're a kid. You just want to jam. And he showed me the chords to Pearl Jam's Alive, which is four chords. It was like a 10 minute guitar solo. And he just wanted to play that solo. <laughs> that's all he he almost selfishly was like, look, he threw a, a Taylor acoustic, his dad's Taylor acoustic in my hands, and he showed me E, G, D, A. And, I, you know, I was able to change chords quickly and kind of have the rhythm, which meant I had an aptitude for it. And then he just went off. He was like, okay, he, like, he spent almost no time with me after that, helping me get any better. Once I could do enough for him to have his thing, you know, he was just wailing. And of, I, of course, loved him and looked up to him and loved his guitar playing. I was just mesmerized that we were making it sound kind of like the record. And it just, honestly, literally from that moment to right now, as I sit here at 40, it's kind of just been like the next step happened. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, like when I was 16, 17, I joined a cover band of dudes that were about 10 years older than me, but they were playing real shows in bars in Birmingham. And I was like, cool. You know, I don't know how to drive downtown. I'm scared. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I saw some gnarly shit because we would play from like, you know, 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. in downtown Birmingham, you know, with all the UAB students. It, it was like very college. And these the bars that I was playing in would lose their liquor license. The, the stipulation for me is six, at 16, 17 to be in the band was on set breaks. I had to just sit on a stool while these other knuckleheads are going out and getting drunk and meeting girls and doing drugs i mean i would just sit there and behold you know what the life of like 22 23 year olds was like in birmingham uh and it was it was scary now when i became that age i was like this is fun this is fun as hell but when i was like 16 17 i was a pretty good little kid you know so it was like it felt seedy underbelly to me you know but i would just sit there and play crazy train and work on the scales and then when we were playing we were playing you know rage against machines it was just it was kind of like an interesting little master class. And like, I had to learn all the solos. That's how I learned how to play. I'd have to learn the Sweet Child of Mine solo. And this, uh, we, we learned Prince songs and we were learning Coldplay songs. It was just a real hodgepodge of music. And I don't, that turned into me playing for some like local Birmingham, like singer songwriter people that were writing original music. And then I was making records. Then I got looped into a van tour up in Nashville. So I drove three hours up into Nashville, scared to death, didn't know anything about Nashville, got in a van with a bunch of dudes who knew what they were doing and knew that I did not. Like, I'll give you an example. I was on a van tour in Florida and we were pulling into Miami and I'd never been to Miami. I'd never really been anywhere. And we're in a full 15 passenger van with a trailer full of shit, heavy ass trailer full of gear. We're pulling into Miami at rush hour for a gig. And I was like, God, this is terrifying. I don't know how you're... I was talking to the guy driving. I was like, I don't know how you're doing. This is terrifying. And he just looked at me and he pulled the van over and he was like, you're driving. And he just threw me in. And I was like, dude, I can't do it. I'll jackknife the trailer. I'll destroy our gear. Like, this is a bad... I, I see what you're doing. This is a bad idea. He was like, dude, you're driving, period. Get in there. Total sink or swim. And it was fine. You know, it was like... And, if, and on that tour, we were in New York City. We were in Boston. They were like, make Clint do it, you know, like I was lucky to have them, but that was just another step. Then those guys became some of my close friends. And then it was when you moved to Nashville. So then it was like, I guess I'm going to figure out a path to move. You know what I mean? And then I moved to Nashville, didn't have any gigs, had a thousand dollars. 
just going out and meeting people and that turned into a offer from Bob Schneider and that, you know, it's just like, I never had one of those moments where like, you know, John Lennon famously saw Elvis in a movie. Elvis goes to Hawaii or whatever and was like, that's what I'm going to do. I, I never had that. I, I've always sort of dumbly tumbled into whatever happened to me. And I had, I've had great women with me along the way, my wife, of course, especially, who uh, helped me make sense of it and stru- put structures around it, like a retirement plan and uh, health insurance. And, you know, we're building a family and we bought a house and uh, we have a kid and I'm, you, should get, you should get a haircut, you know, things like that. <laughs> Seriously. <What's- laughs> okay. You should go to the dentist, you know, stuff like that. My, my wife books all my doctor's appointments. Would you say she's essentially your manager? <laughs> yeah. She's my day-to-day <laughs> and my big picture manager. And I don't think she likes that role very much. I, don't, I, don't, I think maybe she liked it more earlier. Now she's like, I need you to want to take care of yourself, please. Yeah. Well, you know, she's not looking for another kid. She She yeah. wants a partner. <laughs> But but she also, I think, yeah, I mean, that's kind of always been on the table, though, you know, like I, I haven't really changed much. So there is a point where I'm like, well, you did marry me. I mean, you did love me enough to marry me. Let's not lose sight of that. This was I didn't force. Hey, you know what happened? Seriously, I was playing a Bob Schneider show. This is the um the the New Year's Eve. I got engaged on on Valentine's Day of whatever year this was. So this was the New Year's Eve before that. I was playing a big New Year's show at the Paramount Theater in Austin with Bob Schneider. And my wife was there and she thought she was convinced I was going to propose to her. And I didn't. I got hammered. I was partying because I wasn't going to propose to her. So anyway, she's watching. So the whole day she thinks she's, you know, this magical thing's going to happen. And as she sees me getting more and more drunk, she's like, I guess this isn't happening. And we ended up having a big fight about it at uh, that night. We were staying in Bob's guest room. And she was sobbing, crying because she was so sad that I did not propose to her. And I remind her about that. I remind her. I'm like, you were once so sad that I didn't ask you to marry me. So let's just let's just not lose sight of that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Let's not let's not get too far away from that. (laughs) Oh, oh, what? What's your perspective? What's your perspective on the labels around the creation of art and music? For, for me, it took me years. I started writing lyrics and poetry and essays from the age of eight, but it took me until my 40s to actually call myself a writer. Mm-hmm. And even though I play several instruments, I make music, I record music, I do all this stuff, I still struggle intensely with calling myself a musician i do not feel comfortable and maybe it's a sort of well there are people way better than me who i would say are musicians i just don't feel apt enough to do that is that something you've always been comfortable with calling yourself a musician or artist or something thereof yeah i think maybe even to to a fault you know i mean there was definitely time when i had no business I mean, I wasn't like walking around shooting T-shirts out of, you know, T-shirt guns being like, I'm an artist. But I would definitely, I mean, so much of, I mean, I deeply have loved music. There's no doubt about it. But I will say, because I've always been a little bit romantic, little knucklehead, 
that a lot of it was wrapped up in the perception of women with me or girls or trying to get a girlfriend or impress women, you know, like that's the way the world works, you know, um, the, you know, the, the peacock's feathers and all. And, and, you know, I was never a beautiful boy or a beautiful man. So I, I always had to, you know, if you're going to play, get in that pool and play that game, you have to use whatever advantages you have. Humor, uh, you know, I had nice eyes. There's a few things I had. But once <laughs> I picked up a guitar, it leveled the completely leveled the playing field in, in middle school and high school. And I, I don't want to sound like a creep. I'm not, a, you know, I'm happily married with a daughter and all that shit. But I'm just telling you, when you're a kid and your hormones are going nuts and a lot of your mental energy is consumed with, you know, the girls that you that you like, you know, the girls you want to take to the homecoming dance. <laughs> if I'm at a party, hell yeah, I'm telling these girls that I'm a writer and that, uh, you know, that I play guitar. I'm a musician. And because I wasn't really I mean, I, I played a lot of sports, but once. Once the music came into my life, once I got a guitar in my, once I played those chords for that guy and he took a 25 minute solo, I knew that the sports part of my world was done. I just knew that I knew that only so much of my time and energy could go to things and that I wanted it to go to, I wanted it to go to learning that middle part to master of puppets, you know? Like I'd rather work on this. even play it right just then but you know what i mean like once once that became possible like just playing that piece of music sports was over for me yeah if i could say hey i'm a writer i'm a i'm a poet i'm a here's a you know i would write songs i would i remember you know i have this famous story where i called a girl in seventh grade and played machine head by bush on the phone <laughs> i didn't sing it i just played it and that's all just dumb kid stuff so okay so we moved past that into like early 20s I don't think there were a lot of opportunities to to say that I was creative. You know what I mean? Like a lot of my friends were just making music. I had a steady girlfriend or I think, man, I mean, I got married when I was 22 to my first wife. So I kind of paired up. I've always wanted to just be paired up. I'm a sort of serial monogamous. <laughs> Despite all my my Bush uh, playing Bush for the girls. I always just had, since I was like 13, a steady girlfriend. I've never really done the um, casual thing. So I, I always really, the end goal for me was to like partner up with somebody. So by my early 20s, I, had, I was married, my first wife, we were having fun. I was playing in bands. I was going to Bible school or community college, whichever, I can't remember. So there weren't a lot of opportunities to be like, well, I'm this or I'm that. And then in my 30s, I was living here in Nashville and everyone here in Nashville is doing that. And, and it's a rat race in that world. So if you're not talking about your writing, then what are you doing? You know, like people here talk about shit that they're not even doing. They're like, oh, there's a lot of bullshit here. You know what I mean? Because there's there's like a fake it till you make it. It's probably similar to L.A. and New York really, too. You know, it's like it's a very industry driven. And, and you know, if you don't believe in yourself, who's going to believe in you? And the bullshit you just watch the bullshit artists like ascend the ladder and it's like wait wait a minute but i'm over here being cool and humble but no one's my phone's not ringing it's because people want to believe i mean i have this whole theory about you know i'm like why do the bullshit artists succeed and it's like well people want to believe that they are what they say they are you know what i mean you got some you, you know the bullshit artists i'm talking about like oh you know the guy that asked you how you're doing just so that they can tell you what they're doing oh yeah. man how are you what are you up to Oh, I'm good. I'm on the road with Morgan Wade. That's cool. Anyway, I got an Apple deal. 
I got a sink on an Apple commercial. I literally a guy Jamila at like the um at the third Metal Up Your Podcast party, which we have in Nashville. So I'm posting about it, and a bunch of my sort of non metalhead podcast friends will come to those parties because they like me and they're it's fun. You know, the parties are fun. This songwriter guy's like, yeah, I wasn't going to come to this, but I, I saw it post on Instagram last minute. So what are you up to, man? This looks cool. You know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm doing the podcast. And he's like, man, uh, that's cool. I just got this Apple commercial. And he's like telling me how much money he got from it. He immediately started talking about how much money he was making. And I'm like, dude, but you and and, and <laughs> this is so funny. I've never talked about a lot of this. I kind of openly hate this guy. And uh and I'll talk about it, you know, over a beer with my friends in town. I'm like, this guy will come up because he's really well liked. And I'm like, can't you guys see what a fucking germy, bullshitty guy he is? But and, and a lot of my friends are like, man, I see the, I see what you're saying, but I just he's a great guy, you know? And it's like, man, people just want to believe it, you know? Like the guy that comes in and just totally peacocks and like tells you his idea of himself. More people than not want to just believe it's true because it's nice. And, and it, it it's like all the poor people across middle America who love Donald Trump because he's he's rich. And they're like, well, I just love that he's a rich guy because maybe that means one day I can I can be what he is, you know, which is complicated. You know, like when you uh, you know, he's not my favorite dude and I don't think he cares about poor people at all. But a lot of poor people will see him and be like, that's my guy. What a cool dude, you know. What a self-made cool dude. And so this guy in Nashville reminds me of that. I'm like, damn it. But I'll be damned if all my smart, beautiful friends kind of like this guy. It's wild for me. I hate Dang. it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, no, I'll, I'll refer to myself as a songwriter or, you know, a musician. I'll tell you when it feels the weirdest. And it's not even for a reason you may think it is. If we are filling out insurance for Nova. Or like when we were enrolling her in a new school because we moved last year. And they'll ask like your parents, you know, work. I don't like writing musician or self-employed because I think I feel like they judge me. I feel like they're like, oh, yeah, dad's got long hair and an eyebrow ring and he wrote self-employed. He's a bum. And it's like, dude, I've I have carried my family with my work, you know, in seasons where my wife was going back to school. And so that's a really small voice. But that is the only time I actually feel weird saying it. It isn't because I'm afraid that I'm not it. It's because I'm afraid of what uptight people's perceptions of it might be. That I, I play Metallica songs in my garage while my wife works hard. It's like, dude, that is not the case. You know, that's all imagined. That's all just me being insecure. Well, you've been on all sides of this as a parent, as a spouse, as a performer, as a person seeing your friends do those things as well. So understanding the technical and logistical aspects of being on the stage and what it involves, how have you come to experience music as a listener and a fan? Is your brain now wired to detect any incidences on stage or on an album? Like you go see Tool and you're like, wait, and what are some ways you've learned to get out of your own way when it comes to that? Yeah, that's one of the things like life's all about trades. And yeah, that's one of the things you trade, you know, when you when you peek behind the curtain, you've seen behind the curtain and that that's how it is, you know, like whether it's a talent show at the local community center or it's tool at Bridgestone Arena, behind the curtains, the same mechanics It's the same stuff. You know, it's it's just human beings who get together and they make a sound 
people like it or they don't. And you need really practical things to happen for those things to work. You need electricity and you need a team and you got to set it up and it's got to be in tune. And so especially making records, you know, like when I, I remember I used to not learn how to play Pink Floyd songs because when you learn how to play a song, you hear the chords and Pink Floyd to me, there was a time in my life where Pink Floyd was like, the you know they were just it and i i considered their music like sacred or something and i was like i'm not gonna learn how to play any pink floyd songs because i just want this is when i'm like 14 total dummy because i want to just i just want to be able to just get lost in it well of course i learned how to play all the songs because he's one of the greatest great guitar players you know like you want to be a great guitar player you should probably get your fingers under some of shine on your crazy diamond a few times but you just gotta work around it because that's what you trade you know like when i hear a record now i hear the compression on the on the snare and i think about the decisions that they were making sonically and double-edged sword you know like i'll never hear music the same as i did when i was 12 i just won't but i also hear it uh, uh, new dimensions of it now that i try to enjoy and then there are times when you're right like you got to just get out of your head about it and just enjoy it. A band like Tool for me is easy to do because the music's so powerful. I was thinking about it when I saw them recently. I'm like, wow. You know, they have a singer, right? But all he does is sing. But I was thinking about the noise coming off the stage. I'm like, man, there's three guys making this. That's just three guys making this sound. So that's a little easier. If I'm at a show, you know, we went and saw one of my wife's favorite rock bands the other night. They're not one of my favorite bands, you know. It was kind of easy to pick them apart. I was being a little ruthless. Wasn't a lot going on. I was really happy for her. And we had a good time, you know, like I, I enjoyed it. Um, but it, I guess it depends on what it is. But yeah, if a song comes on the radio, I'm, I'm thinking about the, I'll hear an acoustic guitar and I'll know how they mic'd it, you know, like whether they mic'd it with two pencil mics and stereo or whether they put a room mic up. And that's kind of a bummer. But it's no big deal because, I mean, really what I want to do my, the rest of my life is make records and make music. So in a way, almost anytime I'm listening to stuff, I'm, uh, I'm learning. I'm, I'm thinking about, I mean, shit, I put on a, uh, I put on a Pete Yorn record the other day. It was a record I loved in like 2005. I haven't heard it in a while. And I was able to hear it with like 20 years of what I've been doing since then. I was like, oh, man, I, I just could hear a lot about how they made it. And now I don't have to look up chords. Like I can hear an E minor. I know it's an E minor. It might be capoed. Like it might be a half step up or down, but I know that an E minor sounds different than a D minor. It's not perfect pitch or anything, but I, I just know it now. I could make a chart. I remember getting a gig flying home from Nash to Nashville from somewhere. And I got a gig for that 24 hours. I was going to be home. And I remember charting out the entire record on the plane without a guitar, just I just knew, you know, you just do it so many times that you know what it is. I think, too, that's why I love Metallica and Doors for me. There are those bands that I liked before I knew how to play guitar that will kind of take me there. You know, Alice in Chains, of course, any Metallica record, especially Loading Reload, you know how I feel about that. Those records will take me there pretty quick. That's probably why I go to them so much. Here's another part of that. So it's a person who creates versus being a passive participant in the musical experience. Have there been times where you felt your creativity was stifled because your role was simply to play without any input? You know, I always liked that part of it. Before before I was given a lot of creative freedom, it was very much hired gun, learn the parts. Is that what you're talking about? Like just learning, yeah. learning it how it goes. I actually found a lot of comfort in that. And it's really great for when you're starting because 
to put the creative pressure on top of it when you're young is like almost too much. Like I was writing songs, but they were, they were bad, you know, in a charming way. They, they'd be eight minutes long and not have a chorus. Like I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to edit. You know what I mean? I didn't know that I didn't know how to get sections together in a clever way. It would just be like clunky, like verse one and verse one would be way too long. And then I, what I thought was a chorus, but the chorus didn't have a hook at all. It was basically another verse. And then like a really long reintro, instead of getting right into verse two, it'd just be like another 16 bars. So then before you know it, the song's eight minutes long and doesn't do anything. So you basically wrote St. Anger. <laughs> right. Without <laughs> copy and pasting, we just actually wrote it. They were at least using computers and being efficient. But... But yeah, it was comforting when you're when you're young to just say, hey, we're going to play uh, Fade to Black at the talent show, which I did. And you're going to play the first solo. And my remember my guy who I told you showed me those chords and he played the last solo. We ended up being a little band together. But he's like, hey, you're playing the first part of Fade to Black. Like, we, he, you know, he would he was like the little band leader and he divvied out the parts. And that was comforting because it was like, I can get the tab book and I, I can. This is even before really like YouTube. There were like online forum, like um, there was a big one called Harmony Central that had tablature that you could print out, which I had to go to his house to print it out because we didn't have no goddamn printer. We weren't rich. You know, I could focus on it and learn it. Or like, you know, we, we I remember we learned Hotel California and he's like, I'm taking the big solo. But then at the end, the solo splits into these harmonies and you're going to do the low harmony. In that environment, if I'd have been like, well, I want to sp spread my creative wings, it would have been like, dude, what are you doing? Stop. Play it the way it goes, you know? We had a lot of pride, especially with Metallica, in playing stuff the way it went. You know, if we could really nail the Master of Puppets verse riff, all downstrokes, not doing alternate picking, we were honing in on that with each other. Like, dude, James doesn't alternate pick. You're not alternate picking. Don't be a wimp. Do it all downstrokes. We were, like, seriously 14, 13, getting on each other's ass about downstrokes. And that, you know, that was a good time for that. And then... Like all things, I mean, honestly, I've still got friends doing cover band shit, and I'm not knocking it. They're making money, but I'm really glad I didn't get stuck there. And I've actually had a few of my friends that, that are in that tell me that they feel stuck in it, you know, because at a certain point, you got to start b trying to be creative and trying to do something a little different and finding a voice, I think, because all your training listening to your favorite records and learning how to play your favorite records. I mean, I, I could play the Black Album front to back, you know, to start the CD. That was going to be my practice. I was going to play the Black Album. And if I was feeling frisky, I would try to do the solos. But I was mostly the James guy when we were kids. But eventually you start improvising your own shit because you, to really do what they did, you have to find your own thing. You don't want to just copy that. They didn't copy their heroes. Right. They started their own shit, you know. So I like them both. There's something comforting about being given an assignment. Like, hey, this is what your job is. Can you do this job? Yeah. But I've done that creatively, too. It's like, hey, can you write a song for Kelly Clarkson about she just had her second kid and she's 34. She's not ready to be done partying, but she's transitioning into a new part of her life. And I was with a female writer. Like, you guys, can you guys write that song for her? She's looking for a song like that. It's upbeat, 115 BPM. Yeah, hell yeah. I mean, we can try. And that song never made it, but we wrote it. I mean, we tried it, you know, and it was fun. And I learned a lot doing it. I thought it was, I, I like assignments. I really do. I've, I think there's like freedom in being assigned something. You, you have a freedom to just focus on it instead of like, hey, can you write a song for the soundtrack for the new Barbie movie? Those songs that ended up in that movie, you know, it's not my cup of tea. I didn't love the movie. 
I wasn't as bowled over by it as most people. But those songs that Mark Ronson wrote and that Billie Eilish wrote for the end credits blew me away in how they were structured, how they tied into the themes of the movie, how they they made the movie better. And they're just good songs by themselves. I was like, wow. I like stuff like that, too. If anyone's if Greta yeah. Gerwig's making Barbie part two, I'd like a shot at writing uh, the end credits, please. Let's go. If you're listening, you heard it. Exactly. <laughs> Come on, Clint, to write for Barbie too. <laughs> I'll try it. It'll be a Lunar Satan track. Yeah! <laughs> so now here's the part of the episode where we do talk about Metallica. Hell yeah, let's go. <laughs> so you have a podcast. It's mm-hmm. called Metal Up Your Podcast. Mm-hmm. So before we even get into the, as they say, meat and potatoes, I'm vegan, but whatever, of Metallica, what draws you to podcasting? Oh, man. I don't know if I'm even drawn to it. I had to be convinced to do it at first. And then we did it and it it worked, you know, like there was people who liked to listen to it. And then suddenly we had a, a community of people that I enjoyed being around and talking with. And so I don't know if I'm drawn to it. I feel like I'm good at it. And wow. that makes it fun to do. Me and my wife think about like, well, what do we want to encourage Nova to do our daughter? And it's like, well, because it's the whole follow your dreams and follow your passions thing. But then it's also like, well, but I want you to have money and be successful and, and uh, <laughs> you know, have a roof over your head and, and uh, have a good life, you know? So it's like, well, should it be do what you love or should it be do what you're good at? And I think if you are good at something, you grow to love it. There's this guy named Tim Galloway that I like a lot. He's kind of like a professor, professor somewhere, philosopher guy. He talks about, he's like, look, the good, a lot of the good life is about being able to like satisfy basic needs like shelter, food, security, blah, blah, blah. I'm not, we're not talking about Lamborghinis, right? We're talking about basic needs. And you tell your kids to follow their passion. Their passion may not be to study tax code. But if you study tax code, any CPA can get a job in America. And CPAs are paid very well. And he's like, now is tax code sexy? Is tax code playing, you know, singing Bridge Over Troubled Water on The Voice? No, but tax code's going to allow you to vacation with your family. It's going to allow you to send your kid to a good school. It's going to allow you to get good health care. And he's like, and you will grow to love tax code if it's allowing you to take that beach trip to whatever, Santa Monica, and give your kid the pony or whatever. He's like, you can DJ on the weekend. So that's his like funny thing. He's like, look, DJ on the weekend. And that, you know, when I was 20 and I heard that, I would have been like, this guy's a piece of shit. This guy doesn't understand the art, the artful mind. But now as a 40-year-old with a dad, I'm like, it resonates with me. I think I'm drawn to it because it it, can, it comes easy and I feel like I'm decent at it. So that makes it fun. But I ordinarily, believe it or not, Jamila, I ordinarily would not be as vain as to imagine people listening to me talk every week. I really, it's not something I... Now get on stage and be the guitar player that kind of... Because I was never a front man, so the front man's going to front man. Now I'll step out and play a solo. Okay, I'm good for that. I got my 16 bars, bing, bing, bing. But then I'm going to walk back and let the front man do his thing. I'm very, very comfortable with not being the, the front guy. So the fact that it's turned into seven years of, of an audience listening to me pontificate endlessly is a little nauseating. And yet somehow I've <laughs> overcome it and find a way to keep doing it. Because I like it. I mean, I, I like really, the thing I like the most about it, and this isn't bullshit, is like meeting people like you, all the friends that I've made through it. I like that more than just talking. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about 
community, the community that's built during a podcast such as yours? What are elements that create and encourage the community? And what are elements you've seen that sort of discourage community? Oh, man, I think I think it worked at first because Ethan and I were just we had chemistry. We're buddies and we were a little goofy and we weren't trying to be better or smarter than anybody. We would occasionally get get corrected about shit or, or we'd be crunching ice or we'd be too drunk. You know, the early days, we didn't know what we were doing, you know. But I think the vibe we always gave off and that I feel like I still give off, and especially if you've met me in person, is, look, we could be having a beer and just this is what I'm like. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. I I like to find juice. You know, I'll get punched up or have some hot takes. But ultimately, I'm pretty friendly and uh, and I'm interested in people. And I'm scared of people. <laughs> but I know that that's bad for me. So I, I try to become interested. And uh, I think that comes through the podcast. The podcast is really about more than Metallica. I, even Stefan, we were talking about it, you know. We are in editor's note number two. There's mention of Stefan Shirazi. And I just wanted to clarify, Stefan Shirazi has been the writer of various publications over the years, such as Sounds, Rip, and Spin Magazine. Currently, he is the editor of So What, which is Metallica's official magazine, or fanzine, if you will. (laughs) He is also the co-host of The Metallica Report. Back to the episode. He he was talking about why he thinks Metal Your Podcast is special, which I Mm -hmm. thought was really cool and really flattering. And he was basically saying it's really not about Metallica. Um, it's It's kind of a culture vulture podcast that's really about, it's really about what, a band like Metallica does to people, but you know, we're all, cause that's really what we're bonded by too. I, I mean, I think that if you have like the stew of Ethan and I had chemistry, we're not trying to be braggadocious, um, you know, know-it-alls, which that's, that's a bummer. Well, that was one of the things that I remember you saying possibly from the first episode or one of the earliest episodes is we know more than you and we know less than you. Something to right. that effect. Yeah. So, yeah. Because the thing that we do know a lot about, which does make us unique, is we know a lot about the music industry. That's just another angle that I think makes it compelling. Like, that's what I would want to hear someone talk about. And then I've heard other music industry podcasts where the people are kind of shit, know-it-all shitheads about that, too. I just don't think we ever did that. And maybe it's because we're not huge stars. I mean, we're just sort of blue, normal, blue-collar you know, we're not getting rich in the roles that we've been in. We're, we just work hard and we're on the road. But we do cool things. You might see us on TV occasionally. A song I wrote might be on a television. You know, we're doing shit, but we're not Taylor Swift. I don't know. It's, it's mysterious to me, honestly, some of it. I think the thing that makes it bad is when hosts, you know, get detached from reality or they get big heads or it's really the know-it-all shit that, that I think really can kind of damage a community because... And maybe I've been guilty of it too. I don't know. But I, it's something I think about because we're all just trying to have conversations. And it's okay to be wrong about it. You know, it's okay to have an opinion that's a little, that you're working through. I think something that we've kind of lost in discourse in the current climate is like, it's okay to just work through something out loud because right. now it's just trial by. Now, not only do you have to have the right answer in real time, they're going to comb through what you said 10 years ago when you were. 10 years dumber or 20 years ago when you were a kid, which, you know what I mean? Like, and, and I'm not saying that anything you did or said 20 years ago is off the table, but man, things have context and I, I don't rush to make big pronouncements, you know, and 
podcasting generation is so interesting because you're just working out problems with an audience. That's not normal. I come from a very talky place, you know, because I grew up in a very limited experience, very rural, poor Alabama stuff. So I just had the TV on, you know, and I had my CD book, my little case logic. That, and those were the only doorways in the other worlds for me. And I had a bunch of friends going through the same thing. And most of my friends from that time got out of all that and are doing things all over the world. So we were a very talky group, you know, just seeing object racism every day in school. We were going home and talking about that, kissing a girl for the first time or all the things that you do when you're kids, you know, just talking about it and maybe having some not great takes about it. Like, I don't know. I don't, you know, it's like if there was a document of me trying to work out how I felt about, you know, my girlfriends at 14, it's like, I don't know if I had the right answer at 14. I was 14. And I think that even applies to in your mid 20s. You know, it's like, do you feel like you've grown a lot since your mid 20s? Absolutely. And one of the things Muhammad Ali said, and of course, I'm going to paraphrase here, if you're the same person you are now that you were 20 years ago, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, totally. There is a lot to context. No one's perfect. But I think when critique actually works, like I don't think cancel culture exists. People complain about cancel culture are selling out stadium tours. You know? <laughs> so right. I, I don't I don't think that's necessarily that something exists in the way that people address it. I think what people are talking about is accountability culture. How people do accountability is a lot more reactionary than it needs to be. But I think because we are in a society that is individualistic and we did live in a time where people did tell particular jokes or had music or did a lot of things that in this day and age are not seen as favorable. But I think what is missing is the context in that some people do grow, mm -hmm. but there are people who haven't grown. And that's really, I think, where the critique is important. You know, somebody may have made a racist comment or a sexist comment 20 years ago, but they did a lot of internal work, which is one of the reasons I love St. Anger, <laughs> but doing a lot of the internal work to become a better human. And I think that is, to your point, what is missing in the conversation. So when someone sees a social media post from 15 years ago and not accounting to whatever growth that person has had, yeah, then we go on this different trajectory. So I do agree with you in a lot of ways. Like there's no opportunity to allow for growth because we're not a society that encourages growth. We have to find growth on our own or find communities that do that growth. You know, a lot, a lot of it, where a lot of us were latchkey kids, like we just were so isolated. And so I think social media, it inhibits a lot of our growth if we stay on it all day and we just have echo chambers and uh, we don't, we don't interact with different types of people with different views. Yeah. And I don't think that if we are uh, staunch in whatever view we have, that doesn't mean that we just stay with people who think like us. Because we're not even able to grow our analysis on whatever we're staunch with if we don't encounter different people and have struggles. So I think these struggles are very important in order to flower our own analysis, to flower our own growth as people. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's got to be a path back. And I just, I just think it comes into like, human psychology stuff, too. It's just juicier to hate on shit. It, people don't want to forgive. <laughs> forgive. Forgiveness is complicated. Yes, it is. And giving people second chances is complicated. And, and, and I think, too, another slice of the pie, I don't know how big it is, but it's some sliver of the pie, is really on the offended person, too. It's like, look, you're offended. You know, they did something offensive. Okay, you know, before we all had a megaphone to be bummed about it, you would just move on. You would just have to decide, well, is that enough for me to be done with this person or this corporation? Or it's not, you know, and uh, that's kind of gotten a little weird, too. I don't know. You know, I, I like talking to people that aren't like me, and I, I work a lot in country music. And so a lot of country music fans kind of share different priorities, you know, about issues that matter to us. But I'm often, you know, in rooms with these people. And, and now I live in a part of Nashville that is mostly people that aren't like me politically and socially, ideologically. And man, that's been really good for us. It's been just really. And I'm not saying people who are doing violence. I'm, you know, I don't know a lot of people who are doing. I'm, I'm not saying there's not violence, but a lot of my neighbors aren't committing violence. They believe they have some good and bad beliefs. They have some good and bad heroes. Um, mm -hmm. But what we really want is the same thing is just to be happy and have our kids be safe and have a good time and see good movies and listen to great music. And and a lot of us and we're and we're all going to die. I mean, the game is the same for all of us. And so uh, you got to rise above some of the things that keep us tribal. And you're like, oh, man, we're kind of similar. You know, this doesn't obviously apply to people actually enforcing violence. That shit's fucked up. Thankfully, I'm not in charge of it. But, yeah, I'm with you. And I do think that the accountability is important too. I think, I think the lack of social media provided a lot of cover for people where they weren't held accountable, yes. and so that's that's definitely an argument, in, you know, against the whole. It was better days, you know. The, the that's a great point. The Me Too movement, I think, did have collateral damage, but what I do think it did, I think, it was mostly positive, and I think it mostly was a zeitgeist change. In, in the entertainment industry about what's for, going to be acceptable in the future with how to treat women. And I think the pendulum swung hard as, as it usually does. And I think some people got caught up in that, you know, in that shit storm that maybe didn't deserve to be there. And I don't, I don't really know where to put that myself, but that was a good thing because it brought out a lot of shit that's been hiding in the dark that was for too long kind of excused or ignored. Now it can't be. So and those things are going to get, all of this shit's going to get reevaluated, you know, in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You just try to make sure you're doing your best to be informed, be on the right side of it, and not do anything that's going to embarrass you later or embarrass your children. <laughs> that's, that's the important thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so starting a podcast, it could have been about anything. Because you talked earlier about listening to people who work in the industry being songwriters. You could have done that kind of podcast. You could have done a podcast about you too. Some of your favorite bands, Dave Matthews, Tom Petty, Bob Dylan. You could have done any of that. But you started a podcast with Metallica as the primary theme. Mm -hmm. What is so compelling to you about Metallica to do a podcast, to start a podcast, and to still be doing a podcast about Metallica? Well, it, it, it could have been any of those other things. I feel equally passionate about U2 and Dave Matthews. A bunch of bands are going to annoy people that love Metallica. But uh, I was just talked into it, you know? And I I think you're like this too. Like, I'm a little bit encyclopedic about the bands that I love. So 
when I was convinced to do it, it wasn't like, well, all right, well, give me six months to, you know, read up. It was like, I could do it. You know, I could sit down and really do it. Now I've got things wrong and there were things that I have discovered doing the podcast. There were little eras that I didn't know as well and blah, 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 blah. But in terms of like passion, like literally passionate, dedicated, I have sincerely been obsessed with this band since I was like 12. I'm ready to rock. I can talk about it. So that was a starting point. It was like, well, I have something to say about it. I know my shit well enough to start it. But I could have done that with any of those bands. I mean, I could do that with Pink Floyd tomorrow. You know, I could do a Pink Floyd podcast tomorrow. Now I would go through the same ups and downs. You know, there's the Sid Barrett era. I would have to probably have a co-host who knew more of that stuff. I'm kind of more of a metal through final cut guy and i can definitely talk division bell and a momentary lap like the post water stuff but i don't know roger waters solo shit like so there's pockets where i might not be the most authoritative but i would confidently sit down at a microphone tomorrow and start pods on a wing podcast or whatever i would call it you know (laughs) adam hart podcast exactly something like that (laughs) i keep doing it because they keep they keep doing compelling work. You know, they keep doing interesting things. They keep keep putting out good records and going on massive world tours and breaking records. And they keep being interesting as human beings. I mean, no band th- that long is still together. You know, it's just very rare company. Lars was talking about it. He was like, you're going to have to, he was like, what are the other bands? This, you know, he talks about the Red Hot Chili Peppers, a band that's had a hit in four, de- four decades. So they've had hits, you know. I just learned that they are doing shows with Ice Cube. The Chili Peppers? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Which is, what is this, Lollapalooza? Because that's the Ice Cube and the Red Hot Chili Peppers were on that tour, which I saw that. We did was that a, 92? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, early 90s. We just did a festival last summer with Ice Cube that he headlined called Evolution Festival. I think it was in St. Louis. It was amazing. <laughs> we Of course, we all watched his set. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Did jacket for beats today is a good day but he ended death certificate yeah he ended with today was a good day but he did like nwa stuff and really yeah i mean ah. it was it was like fascinating and that that was a time of hip-hop that i was kind of engaged more so because of mtv you know i was right. like way more plugged into it so it was like kind of nostalgic for me i think for a lot of people there but anyway <sighs> yeah it, i i keep doing it just because it's it's grown bigger than the band and I don't yes. know. I, I feel responsible for it in a good way. I don't want to let anyone down. And I know that my favorite podcasts, you know, I, I look forward to them and I need them. And they're a really important source of structure in my life. And I feel that about, I feel that way about doing it. It's important for me to keep doing it. But I also feel responsible for the people who I know love the show and look forward to the show. Mm. And we're getting rich doing it. Duh. Are you sitting in your mansion right now? Exactly. I got to go. Get, I'm, I'm having my yacht gassed up right now. And you're, you're you're in the hot tub right now. Your second hot tub. I'm in a hot tub on a private jet. Yeah. Exactly. So I got into Metallica over 30 years ago. I was 14 years old. They were my favorite band. Battery was my favorite song of all time. But it wasn't until well, it's going to be three years. Up to that point was... When my love for the band increased and my love for the band actually was rekindled after this accident. And one was the one song in my head, even though I was listening to it on repeat shortly before the accident. That was one of the songs that really saved my life when I was sitting in the hospital. 
I ended up connecting with the band in stronger ways when I got out of the hospital. So what songs hold this special place for you of Metallica is that when you fall into these undesirable emotional spaces? No, first song that comes to mind when you talk about like what would be, I mean, I haven't experienced anything like what you went through, so I'm not making light of that. But when I think about, mm. okay, like a dark, a dark night of the soul type feeling for me, the first song that comes to mind without any real thought is The Unforgiven 2. And I don't know why. I mean, it's a dark song. It's It's got very poetic language. It seems to be about guilt over a relationship gone bad. It's like he kills the chick or something. And it, that's all nebulous and doesn't even really matter. It's really more about, I remember when I was, um, that would have been ninth grade for me. And my mom had gotten divorced. We had a fairly normal suburban life, like, you know, a three-bedroom house. And my sister had her own room. My brother had his own room. We were in the suburbs and my parents got divorced and we moved in with my grandmother, who was a, a wonderful woman, uh, but a very small little garden home in Alabama. And my sister and my mom and my little brother shared a room. They gave me my own room because I was a 14-year-old boy. <laughs> I don't really know why they did that, actually. But our lives just changed. Our life changed big time. It was a shock. It was just it was just a, a weird time. You know, it's just like family fell on hard times. And just for whatever reason, that was that CD that was in my disc man every day. I felt, you know, I was an angsty 14-year-old and probably had a girlfriend that broke up. Who knows? You know, I can't even remember. I just remember I felt sort of lonely and friendless. And that CD, as dumb as it sounds, felt like my friends. Those little songs were like my friends. That's one of the reasons I have such an affinity for that album, particularly, you know. So one of the reasons that I will always defend Slither and Better Than You and Yes. Carpe Diem Baby and, and uh, you know, all the cool deep cuts on that album. Fixer, of course, was a big, you know, can you heal with... Okay, wait. I, I have to tell you, my single... There were so many great moments on Metal Up Your Podcast. My favorite moment of all time. I was there at the 40th. I was there live when it happened. But then I went to listen to the episode and Fixer came on. Y'all were in the middle of talking about ACDC, I think. And... <laughs> Then you hear the tape, you know, my God, that's Fixer. Yeah. That's Fixer. Wait, wait, that's Fixer. <laughs> so I just had to say that. Okay, cool. <laughs> I know. That was such a fun moment because I, I really didn't have any inside information about that. I was just sort of letting it all burn down. But I think the reason that that song, like that time of my life, such a, uh, it was just such a low point. And it's, it feels silly to say that 14 years. I didn't know shit. I was just a kid. Like, you know, Nova will sometimes come home and be like, her like best friend's this kid named Rhett in the neighborhood. And like most nine, 10 year olds, he's awesome. But then he can be a little boy. He can be mean. Some, you know what I mean? Like they're kids. And she'd be like, this is the worst day of my life. And she's being serious. I'm like, well, what's going on? She's like, Rhett is being bossy about the trampoline. You know, it's like, it's the worst day of her life because Rhett, she really likes Rhett. I think she even loves Rhett, like the way that kids love each other. So when Rhett's yeah. dismissive or bossy, it really hurts her. Like she'll come in crying. It really hurts her feeling. It's a big feeling for her. But part of my job as a older, wiser dad is I'm like, eh, you're going to be all right. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be fine. Don't if, if that's the this is the worst day of your life. You've had a good life, babe, you know, but it was a low point in my life at that point. And so I don't know that record was just ever, and I was listening to all sorts of stuff. It's not like that was the only record, you know, uh, and I, I loved Ride the Lightning. Ride the Lightning was my shit. 
Like I could I could go toe to toe with all the OG real shit. If anyone wanted to argue about it, even in 1997, I was ready to argue. I'll talk about Trapped Under Ice all you want, bud. But Unforgiven 2 really comes to mind. Really, those two, the two records, Un- Until It Sleeps, Unforgiven 2, the more moody stuff. Yeah. I really loved Carpe Diem Baby. Uh, yeah, but like the Bleeding Me's, you know, the Outlaw Torns. Those were just hitting me at that time. I think that's what it is. It's just I was going through a rough time and those records made me feel better. And then when things got better, which they, of course, did, and my whole life has been, I've had a nice life, you know, I have a lot to be grateful for. You just never forget how these certain pockets of songs or bands got you through something. And they just, they'll live forever in a really special place in you when they've done that for you. And that that's what Metallica, Metallica is part of that. There's a chapter in my life, you know, called Metallica, for sure. No doubt. And this is even before the podcast. Now I'm seven years into this podcast. I mean, it's it's a long chapter now. But but before anyone had ever heard of me, I'm telling you, when I, you know, I was 18 years old in Alabama, there was already going to be a chapter called Metallica. And it, it was going to heavily feature Load and Reload already. <laughs> and that was 22 years ago. Your love for Load and Reload, I would say, is pretty similar from my love to St. Anger. And I would say Lulu as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... Those, I think all four of those albums in some capacity, Load, Reload, Lulu, St. Anger, have been hated by the community uh, to varying degrees. <laughs> and I feel like Load is starting to get a little more respect. And there's a box set coming out and everything. But over time, all four of those albums have been disrespected, hated, unfairly critiqued, etc. Nothing's immune from critique, but I feel like the critiques have been unfair on all four of those albums. But do you feel, I know that you're not as into Lulu and St. Anger, but do you feel those albums hold a special place in the catalog? Hmm. I mean, they're special for sure. <laughs> I think St. Anger is closer because uh, the material is very, the material is not mysterious. You know, if anything, it's this it's being hit over the head really bluntly, you know, like, Uh, you know uh love is control and you know it's very it's very clear what they're working through and i and i it's visceral and it's pummeling and it's that's a record that also we're 20 years later on and 20 years it's kind of a 20 year cycle thing people tend to reevaluate things a little more fondly because before you know it two decades are gone and the shit that you were bummed about is now nostalgia you're maybe remembering you're maybe longing for 20 years back and you're like you know what i wish i would appreciated that a little more because i wish i was 20 years younger or whatever my parents were still alive then or or i I was living in a city i loved or whatever like everyone connects these things with personal things that are happening to them that have nothing to do with the music that's another thing that i think is hard to remember when you're having fun kind of debating it is everyone's really connected a lot of this material to things that have nothing to do with the music part so if you're on a forum and you're having fun or if I'm speaking into a microphone to thousands of people, I can't quantify all of that in one hour. So invariably people are going to get feel lost in the mix and offended or, <laughs> or, or deeply resonate or what he's talking about my life, you know? So I think St. Anger is that, you know, St. Anger is going to, I mean, it's probably the most talked about Metallica album. If you, if you look at their whole history, it's just the most <laughs> kind of debated and, it's one of the most challenging, and I mean that in a good way, artistic statements ever by a mainstream band that the world knows. I mean, 
A lot of bands that no one's ever heard of are making really challenging music in a basement somewhere. Great. But of bands that are like household global, uh, you know, names that have changed the world, that are like zeitgeist moving parts of culture, that's a struggle. I mean, I I don't know a band that big that's made a record like that. I just don't yeah. know, you know. And then cue everyone writing in their favorite underground steampunk Appalachian folk band that only uses hammers and pipes or whatever the fuck. I mean, I get it, you know. Lulu is interesting. Lulu's interesting in a t- an entirely different way because it's, and I never really understood Lou Reed until after I did that that episode and people were like dude you need to check out lou reed and like i've listened to transformer in berlin hundreds of times now and it's only been a couple of years i really understand him more and i i understand the the project more it's still hard to listen to for me but that's just me i mean i really ultimately like really palatable um digestible music and and i'll listen to those artists do challenging things like U2 had a middle period that was very challenging. Metallica's got St. Anger that's very challenging. A lot of bands make challenging records if they're good, you know? Like, there's yeah. not a challenging ACDC record, and I love ACDC, <laughs> but there's not a record of ACDC where you're like, man, I'm wrestling with some of the themes here, you know? Radiohead made Kid A and Amnesiac, very challenging mm-hmm. records that mm-hmm. at the time I really didn't get. Now they're some of my favorites. Like, you know, my, my favorite bands do that. Yeah. You actually reminded me of this song, Lou Reed does. And this is going to our earlier conversation. Lou Reed does this song called I Want to Be Black. And this is one of the problems I have with the internet age, because there's a lot of songs that were satirical and they're very clearly satirical. But in this day and age, people read things so literally that people are like, oh, Lou Reed, he would be canceled. Yes, if it was a literal song, yes. <laughs> right. But you could hear the sarcasm dripping from how he read the song. And that was Lou Reed. Yeah. He made metal machine music. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's like he, he just made really transgressive music and art. And if you yeah. kind of looked into him at all, you're like, dude, he was on a different plane. He, he did not care about people's skin color. You know, he dated a trans woman. It's like that dude did not care about normal conventions of society. And he was toying with a lot of it, you know, like he really was making like kind of higher art concept type art, which is fascinating to me. You know, like there's room in my world for it. But, you know, I, of course, am drawn to his more commercial records. Transformer in Berlin kind of represent his most mainstream you know, take a walk on the wild side and satellite of love. That song "Perfect Day" blew me away. I could not believe that he wrote that song. I played it. I, I played it for my wife recently because I heard it in a movie. Mm-hmm. It was in a horror movie, but it was a Duran Duran cover. Oh wow! And I didn't know, and I shazammed it, which I don't really do that often. You know, yeah. like I'm I'm kind of not looking really for a lot of new music. I'm just not. I'm not. My radar is not wide open anymore because I, I just have so much music I already love. But I shazammed it, and I was like, holy shit, Duran Duran? And then uh, we did the Lulu episode, and someone, I think you and Carl particularly were like, you should check out Lou Reed. Right. You were like, it's not all the machine, bone machine music or whatever, metal machine music, noise shit. 
And I remember getting Transformer because I recognized Satellite of Love, which is a song you too used to cover uh, during the okay. during the Zoo TV stuff. I saw Perfect Day and I was like, oh, you know, there's a lot of songs called Perfect Day. Guster has a song called, there's a lot of songs called Perfect Day. And then it came on and I was like, holy shit. And I was, I remember telling my wife, I was like, surely someone co-wrote this. Like, surely this is like a Randy Newman song that Lou Reed co-wrote or, or covered. And I looked it up and it's like, no, he wrote, he sat down at a piano and wrote this song. And I'm the kind of guy where, like, I remember I told my wife, I said, he gets a pass now for everything he did. Because if you can write a song that good and you know what it takes to, if you can do that, then you know what's going on. Now, he might have been so talented and so interesting that he's bored by just writing great. I'm like, dude, just write 10 of those for every album. But that's not the trip he was on. He was he was on a high level, you know. He was he was doing shit I don't really understand. And it's almost like writing Perfect Day for him is boring. When I heard Perfect Day, I thought I maybe one day in my whole life I'll be lucky enough to write a song this good. And he's like yeah, I mean, that's just a song I wrote. It, it's, in fact, that song's not weird enough for him. He was bored by it. It's too conventional. It's got a verse and a chorus and then another verse and then a chorus and then this great outro. And it's nice to listen to. And he's like, boring. It's like, come on, James. I know. So I understand Lulu more and there's a place for it. Like everything that they said about it's true. It kind of sounds like they're dodging it because it was not commercially well received where they're like, you know, it was a Lou project and we're not going to say no to Lou Reed and that all sounds kind of bullshitty until you until I kind of got more context for Lou and was like, oh no, yeah, like yeah, if Lou Reed calls you, you make the album that he wants to make, and you, and you know, I love Metallica because they really do always try their best. I don't think they always knock it out of the park, but man, they they're passionate, you know, like they get in there and really are passionate. Now, sometimes Kirk loses his phone, or sometimes James has to go on a six month, you know, they've got things that come into their lives because they're human beings. But I like their their commitment and their passion. And you hear that in Lulu. You really do. I try not to do the thing where I'm like, well, it's got good riffs. Uh, I, I, just, I try not to separate it all out. I try to just take it like for what it is. And for what it is, I mean, it's intense, but it's full on. And, you know, I can respect it for sure. Getting to load for a second. I know you've been talking a lot about the riffs and the ways you connect with the music in that way. For me, I'm primarily a lyrics person. I'm a writer. So that's one of the first things I look at. And to me, Lode in particular has some of James Hetfield's greatest writing. Yeah, I just connect with it in so many ways. I think musically, yeah, I, the riffs are amazing. I love that they went to blues scales. I, I love that they went there. But musically, I feel like Lode walks with St. Anger could run. And St. Anger ran so 72 seasons could soar. Hmm. I feel like they are three chapters in a particular book. It's just they're very vulnerable albums. Reload to a lesser degree. I mean, you have Fixer. But I just feel like there are particular periods. I don't think people necessarily acknowledge that. I think there is so much of a focus on the solos and the riffs. I don't think James Hetfield really gets enough credit for songwriting. And I, I do happen to appreciate that the songwriting aspect was, uh, was a lot more democratic in St. Anger. I get why people wouldn't like that because James Hetfield is such an amazing songwriter. But I feel like they had to go through that in order to go through 
this particular aspect of their lives. And then we have 72 seasons, which I think is what happened within the 20 years between now and St. Anger and the maturity and the ability to allow themselves to be vulnerable. And it's got some great riffs. But I, I just think that, you know, when people focus on, well, it's not this or it's not that or Kirk's solos aren't this or or Lars is playing in this way, it doesn't allow for their humanity. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, you kind of, at some point, you just have to take it for what it is and quit. I, I think a lot of people were perplexed by it and challenged by it. So they're just trying to understand, like, well, why, what's going on? You know, so then you start pulling apart things like, well, there are no solos. Okay. Um, they're tuned down. The snare's off. He let everyone write. You know, you just start trying to understand it, which I think is helpful. But I think when it just becomes a litany of what's different, yeah, you, you, you're losing what it is and you should just, I think, and you know, it's an album. You can listen to it a million times and you can listen to it in a certain mood or on a certain day or you can revisit it and feel differently about it. And I think sometimes you listen to, I listen to it analytically sometimes where I'm like, man, if they just, you know, trim this or don't, you know, shorten this. But I do think it's good too for someone like me to just listen to it sometimes and just take it as a piece of work. Like you said, it's like their humanity. That's what they're going. And that's what they say when they explain it. And it it's true. They're like, well, we we get, we get did the best we could. That's where we were. And these are the songs we wrote for that time. And someone out there resonates. You know, they always kind of make room and say, it's someone's favorite album. You know, they're always talking about you probably. And now, <laughs> yeah. now it's at a place where even people like me are longing to see that material live. Like, I'd almost rather see Dirty Window than like Wherever May Roam or something, you know? So, yeah. And, you know, the thing about it's hard for me to correlate it with the load and reload stuff, because during that time, they were just all over MTV. It just didn't the, the conversation. I didn't have a lot of older people in my life that were like super butthurt. You know what I mean? Like all my friends and I really liked it. My friends didn't really start jumping off until I disappear. For some reason, that really bugged some of my friends, that song. And then, of course, St. Anger was tough for all of, all of us at that time, at that age. But when Load and Reload were out, I mean, dude, Fuel and Memory Remains were on MTV like every 90 seconds. You know, the Motherload thing was this big MTV thing. Until It Sleeps was all over MTV. King Nothing, Hero of the Day, Cunning Stunts came out. We were jamming the Mexico City. You know, we were jamming binge. Like, the 90s was like my time. Which everyone's heard me say that many times. But all that to mean, like, I felt like culturally they were also very powerful. So it, it didn't seem like uh, I just wasn't really privy. I wasn't on the Internet, you know, whereas St. Anger was Internet age, a lot more divisive. I think more challenging than the load reload stuff sonically and more people kind of scratching their heads and arguing about it. It wasn't until later that I realized so many people were upset about load and reload because all my friends liked we liked kill them all and we liked load. Right. We were just too dumb. We we're just a bunch of Alabama kids learning to play guitar. We it was just very uncomplicated for us. It's like, dude, seek and destroy rips. We're gonna play seek and destroy. Then we're gonna play, uh, you know, ain't my bitch. You know. Right. Well, I'm one of those people who did come to know Metallica. I was introduced to them through Kill 'Em All, through Master of Puppets, through No Life Till Leather, and then heard the Black Album. Like it wasn't for me oh they sold out or whatever even though my introduction to them was actually their first stuff and then load came out i was like 
oh, Kirk and Lars, you know, like I didn't have that struggle either. So it is interesting how people view Metallica in their own lives and whether or not they feel they sold out. I, I didn't feel that way either. I'm with you on that. Well, and two, I think what I would want to say to those people is like, dude, it's okay if you don't like it. I think mm-hmm. the problem for me is tying in, trying to make sense of not liking it for bad reasons. It's okay to just be like, the sounds going into my ear holes and into my brain aren't pleasant. Instead right. of it being more about, I don't like the way they look or they cut their hair or they're not playing fast or they're not on my team anymore or they're not wearing bullet belt. Like Those are just such bad reasons to, re- to reject a piece of art. And, you know, I'm not the arbiter of all that. I'm not going to, I don't really care. I'm not going to, I don't even argue with people anymore about it. I'm like, I don't give a shit if you don't like a band or a song or an album. But I do think there are good and bad reasons to reject things. And I think it's perfectly valid to be like, I I mean, I checked it out. It just didn't speak to me. Maybe it will later, you know? Repeat after me. We don't give a shit. <laughs> exactly. Maybe that's what James was talking about in Cunning Stunts. Like, I'm prepping y'all. I'm prepping y'all right now. Repeat after me. Right. So you got one more thing to talk about. You. You are a person who has released music. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I know one of your primary aspirations is Mike Campbell, who's played with Tom Petty. And whenever I think of Tom Petty, I had these friends. We would hang out and we always put Tom Petty's name in his songs. It just fit. So it'd be like, you don't have to live like a Tom Petty oh, gotcha. like Tom Petty around here no more you know all that. that's <laughs> oh a fun God. game so that's what we did it just fit <laughs> but the, my connection to Mike Campbell is um, one of my favorite bands of all time is Bad Religion and Brett Goritz who's uh, one of the primary co-songwriters in the band Mike Campbell is also one of his uh, inspirations so there's there's a little connection there <laughs> but you have eps you have albums you have vampire you have going supernova you have the great white light ep and then you have your project lunar satan mm-hmm. so uh what are some liberatory aspects in terms of writing recording and producing your own music as opposed to with someone else and on the other side are there any struggles that you've encountered doing this well, I write so many songs for other people because I, I love writing. You know, we talked about it earlier. I feel like I'm good at it. When I sit down to write a song, a song usually will happen. It may not be one of my favorites, but I'm a high volume writer. I have some friends that only write 10 songs, you know, every year or two. And those are the 10 songs that are going to be on their album. And they spend a lot of time on those 10 songs. I tend to write songs very fast. I honor what they are. They get birthed. Maybe you can maybe you can tweak a few things, but they mostly are fully formed and then they either can fly away from the nest or they, or they can't. Yes, I write in the <laughs> same they, way. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Either they can get their own food and survive or they can't. And, uh, you know, it's a very like old, you know, it's like old school families would have like 10 kids because four of them are going to die and they, <laughs> they needed six of them for the farm. But I kind of look at songs like that. Uh, I'm not really precious about it, honestly. I'll write, um, you know, there are bands that I've written for that I don't listen to their records or I've written songs that I wouldn't put on. I think writing is a craft and I think that some of the best songs are songs written from personal experience and 
imbued with like real tactile imagery that you've lived and there's something you know chris stapleton is going to be a guy that writes songs about his life and they're going to resonate that's what he does you know but ricky martin who is also worth i don't know twenty thousand tickets in any arena in the world who gives a shit if that's real to him i mean no one cares you know what i mean and that's valid i would love to have written live in la vida loca in fact desmond child who wrote live in la vida loca also wrote some of my favorite Kiss songs and Bon Jovi songs. And and a guy like Desmond Child or Carole King or Diane Warren, I love these great songwriters behind the scenes who were able to get with an artist, understand what an artist is all about, and help them write a song that was going to open up their world, you know? Uh, so I, I very much appreciate that. But it is a different kind of world. But, but so I do that all the time. I'm, I'm And I have a lot of empathy, you know, like, I was born with a lot of empathy for whatever reason. So it's easy for me to get inside of it and try to just do my best to help someone, help someone have a voice. It's one of the things I, uh, when I'm writing in my studio, trying to make a record with somebody, if they know who they are as an artist, that's the easiest and the best. They just need help with lyrics, need help with connecting a bridge to a chorus. Oh, what if we did this for the solo? And then I can, of course, play the solo and I can, I can harmonically make sense of it and get an artist to a place where they can share the best version of that song with their fans, you know? I fucking love that stuff. <laughs> so, but for me, my records are just the stuff I want to write, which tends to be sadder, kind of forlorn, stranger stuff. My lyrics aren't... A lot of country writing is like, these two people met here, then they went to this place, then this happened. And then you'll do a big picture chorus thing, right? Like, they're, you know, blue sky, you know, surviving the rain clouds because blue skies are going to come one day. And then verse two is these two people who we've already introduced who did A, B and C, they're having this conflict. And then you hit the big picture, big chorus guy again, you know, never mind the rain. We'll see blue skies again. OK, then you then there's a guitar solo. Then there's sort of a big picture bridge. There's like formulas that work and they're cool. It's like it's like a movie. Movies have a first act, a second act, and a third act. There are beats to stories that I think go back all the way to Buffalo paintings on the cave walls. Like stories have rhythms and beats. And there's nothing wrong with knowing what they are and, and using them to an advantage, right? My songs tend to be stranger, dreamlike snapshots lyrically. They don't really flow A to B. They're very like Dylan-esque, Mr. Tambourine-esque. They're not as good as that, but they come from that world. And it's just, it's fun. A lot of the songs are, there's like murder ballads and these couples are killing each other and shit. I'm happily married, you know, like I'm not killing anybody. I don't know what some of the songs are about. The Lunar Satan shit was just like fun. It was like just imagining writing a soundtrack for the movie Event Horizon. It was like, what's playing in the spaceship that goes to hell and comes back? Uh, that's fun. Maybe I like to imagine Lunar Satan's like headlining the planet or whatever that they went to. So anyway, it's just fun. I'm not real precious about that material. I don't go play it live. I don't have a band. I don't even know how to play most of it because I write it and record it immediately. And, and then I'll have my friends play on it and I'll produce it out and I'll get it mixed and stuff. But I've never really played them other than the kind of the day that they were born. We work in the same way. That's so fun. Yeah, exactly. So they're fun to put out. Like I do feel like it's important for me to document those songs because I mean, honestly, I have a thousand more like a, I could stop writing songs now and put out, you know, 15 more albums. So I actually kind of have done that. I've actually kind of slowed down my writing a lot. 
I think I'm just going to find the 10 to 20 that deserve to be born in the real world and just get them done, you know, which a lot of, I tend to demo out a lot of my stuff. A lot of my stuff is like 60% of the way through. So it's just a matter of like putting real drums on it, maybe replacing some of the guitars, re-singing it. But I love it. And, and um, I've never really had a lot of struggle writing stuff because I don't have a lot of, um, I tell people this all the time that are trying to write. It doesn't have to be your best song. Just write it. You can write through it pretty quick. Just if it's like you're really not feeling it, I guess ultimately you can just stop and go about your day and do something else, I guess. I think it's more interesting to just write through it. Just write the crappy song. Write the turd. And then what's there to be afraid of? Just there you go. It's done. Or if you really think it's special, but you just are not in a place to like finish it and you really think it's like something good. All right, then move on and you're fine. It's no big deal. But I think uh, the best songs come fast. And if you're if it's a turd, it's unlikely to change into a piece of gold. You know what I mean? It's really, really unlikely to quit being a turd. So just have fun and polish it. You know, that's when I start getting the guitars out. My really precious songs are really more like piano and acoustic, and I'm really trying to carve out the melody and make sure it's like resonant and powerful. But if it's kind of turning into a turd, that's when you can just get the guitars out and crank them and turn it into some sort of punk rock dream. You know what I mean? You, and then sometimes that works, and you're like, wow, this is actually cooler than I thought. It's not this precious little thing. It's just a song. Yeah. That's sort of my spiritual setting point with that. <laughs> so <laughs> I agree with you. I we work similarly. That's so funny. But can you talk briefly about the differences between recording, producing, mixing, and mastering to somebody who's not familiar with that and is interested in working on music? What are the differences? Oh man. Okay. Well, when you're recording music, you're literally just recording the instruments onto software. So if you understand my, an engineer in a recording process is the guy that understands all the gear. Okay, we're doing an acoustic guitar vocal session. He knows which microphones to use that are best set up for that. He knows how to set up the microphones in a way to avoid phasing from the microphones, to avoid bleed. An engineer is the guy that's sort of the scientist. And the engineer is usually the one recording. So when I'm making a demo in my house and I'm setting up the mics, I'm doing all the recording and engineering. Producing a record, uh, it can look like a lot of things, but essentially what a producer does is is you're the papa bear. You're in charge. So a band like Metallica will come in and a guy like uh, Greg Fiddleman will go, all right, well, play me your new songs. And they'll say, okay, we have these we have these 20 new songs. A producer role could be, okay, well, here are your 10 best ones, but eight of those 10 need to be tightened up. This one needs a better intro. This one needs a lyric change. They'll gather the material and put a plan together. Like when I did Morgan's record, I had all the songs, but none of them had solo sections or bridges. It was just verse chorus. Mm. So I was like, all right, cool. Well, here's where we need to do a double chorus. Here's where we need a solo. Here are the chords that need to go under the solo that are different than the verse, but harmonically make sense. And here's how we need to get out of the song. Here's what, and then, and she was cool with all that. So I basically drew the map. She wrote the songs. She did the real work, the work that matters. I made the roadmap. And then, I w and then she wasn't even in the studio when the band was there. So I did all the acoustics and we got her vocals. And then she went away to live her, you know, she's got a very busy, interesting life. So she's off doing her stuff. So the drummer's in there, pedal steel player's in there, bass player's in there, guy on keys. They're all in the main room. I'm sitting in the control room. 
and I'm going, I give them the, I made the chord charts. I, you know, for almost each song on the record, I was like, hey, this is what it needs to be like. And I would reference like a Cat Power song or like a Neil Young song and just to get everyone vibed. And I'm like, this is what I want to do. Uh, Sam, who was our pedal player, I'm like, Sam, the solo section, that's you. Do something like Daniel and Wah. Don't do Eddie Van Halen. Do something like pretty long notes. Don, who's our keys player, you're going to be on organ on this one. But once you're done with the organ, I want you to do a pass on piano too. So producer's just organizing it. So then we would burn the song down. Producer's got to be the guy going, cool. Uh, all right. The drummer on the bridge, instead of going to the ride, I want you to stay on the hat, but open the hat. Bass, I want you to do eighth notes in the bridge. Uh, Don, everything on the organ was beautiful. You go ahead and switch to piano. Sam on the steel, everything you do is pretty. I want another shot at the solo. And then we run it a second time and everyone makes those adjustments. And then, you know, two hours later, you're done with that song and you're having lunch and then you're trying to get two or three more before the day's over. But it's a big job producing. And some producers are musicians who can play all the instruments themselves. Some musicians, some producers are not like Rick Rubin, like Jimmy Iovine, you know, there are these guys that just understand music and melody and hooks. And if you get a great band in a room, you can do whatever you want. So I think those are all, oh, and so mixing. All right. So you get everything onto tape or onto the program or whatever. And then a mixer is someone who understands sonically where everything should go. Using EQ, you can carve out space. So, you know, a kick drum and a bass guitar are occupying the same frequency. And if you just have them both hitting at the same time, boom, 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 boom. It can be muddy and rub, but you can EQ those two things to work together. And a mixer knows how to do all that. That's kind of beyond me. Mixers put in compression, EQ, reverb, and they're spacing and panning everything where it goes. So, you know, a snare and a bass guitar are going to be right up the middle. But the hi-hat's going to be slightly to the left, you know? You're going to have guitar one, kind of like Loading Reload. You got guitar one way over here, guitar two way over here on the right. And if they were both up the center, it'd be weird. But they're spread, you know? So Mixer does all that. A mastering engineer takes the final mix and basically levels out the compression so that all the highs come down, all the lows come up. And so dynamically, it makes sense. And a, a mastering engineer will also, you know, the 10 songs that you recorded are all different kinds of songs. One's up fast, one's slow, one's this kind of vocal, one's got a big solo. And he just makes sure that the whole record experience is smooth. And basically, it's a very, it, they, this is a kiss. It's a touch. Yes. It doesn't just make it louder. It uh it smooths out everything and gives a uniformity to the recording so that it's a pleasant listening experience. Yes. And those are all the stages. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. And here is the final part, your John Lennon moment. So I know you always talked about the interview that John Lennon did where the interviewer asked him to answer rapid fire responses to particular songs. So oh, yeah. now I'm going to do that for you. <laughs> oh, boy. Hell yeah. So I know you talked about, you know, when you do a song, you're done with it, but you still might hold some sort of connection to it in some way or have a particular reference. So I'm just going to throw on a few songs for you. You have rapid fire answers. So Albatross. Oh, man. Probably the best song I've ever written. Oh, <laughs> Dream Eater. Dream Eater. <laughs> Fun experiment. I don't know what it means. I think I wrote it about Donald Trump. 
but then I then I thought that was boring. Uh, really, just an excuse to play guitar, loud guitar chords. Nice <laughs> chains. Oh, I love chains. Piano ballad that's very strange. There's a really cool bridge where the chords change a lot, and I didn't know what I was doing. All those chords are on a piano, and I remember I was in a songwriting group with people, and a girl wrote about that song. She was like, I really like the song, but I think it." Sh-. she basically critiqued it and said that it should do these different things, which I thought was super rude. And uh, I never wrote back to her, but I, I that whenever I change a thing about chains, I think one of the cooler songs I've done and there's a Bukowski reference in there. So it says, uh, it talks about there's a bluebird in my heart. Mm. That's from a Bukowski poem called A Bluebird in My Heart. But I like that one. That's uh, That was a sleeper. <laughs> Hack the planet. For having fun with the idea of the movie Hackers. That song's about having a panic attack. I have panic attacks on planes. Well, I used to. I used to have panic attacks on planes. And I didn't know what they were because I'd never had them in my life. I started getting them about six, seven years ago. And I've, you know, if you had a panic attack, you understand, you think you're dying. It's really horrible. You're not panicky. You're not like anxious. You just suddenly feel like your body's shutting down. At least that's how mine are. I feel like I'm going to puke and have diarrhea and I, I lose my motor skills and I feel overheated and I, I just feel like I'm dying. It's, I really thought I was dying the first time I had one. And uh, I get them on planes because I get hot. And uh, I figured out that for me, the combo was caffeine and heat. So now I'm an aisle sitter. Like I have to be able to get out and get to a bathroom just to throw water on my face. And I always have water to throw. I, I've dumped a whole bottle of water on my head before to stave off a panic attack. So the song Hack the Planet is about having a panic attack on a plane. Lie for love. Oh, man. Um, pretty good song. One, I remember Avi Vinegar. that was his first week in the song game. I got him in the song game that I was in with Bob. And that week I turned in that song and he wrote a nice email about that. And he was like, oh, wow. He didn't know that I was a songwriter, you know. Man, I like that one a lot. You know, the idea that you're willing to, you'd rather believe a lie about something than hear the truth. And uh, especially in, in matters of love. Just lie to me. Like Johnny Lang said all those years ago, just lie to me. <laughs> Tell me I'm young and beautiful and that you love me. That's fine. Doesn't matter if it's true. Just say that. That's what that song is. <laughs> Going supernova. I wrote that actually before we were pregnant. That's an older song. Uh, space rock. I don't even, I don't know what a lot of my songs are about. I'd have to look at the lyrics too, but uh, that was just an excuse to rock too. A lot of the Going Super, Supernova album was just COVID times, written a bunch of self-serious Ryan Adams wannabe songs and just wanting to rock. One last shot. That's a song about growing up on MTV and then the entire second verse is, is lifted from Prince's Seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the first lyric is, uh, I remember watching MTV, staying up late and hoping to see Big Empty or TLC chasing waterfalls for STP. Mm-hmm. My whole life like an open road ahead of me before true love taught me what I now know that good things come and good things go. It's the song about innocence. The chorus talks about wanting to like be in my mom's arms again, kind of a mommy thing. But the second verse is all seven and we'll watch them fall. If they stand in the way of love, we'll smoke them all. It's the whole verse or it's the whole, it's the chorus of seven which I'm sure is a copyright infringement, but I'm sure he doesn't mind. 
he'll, he'll come down and be like, uh, can I get uh, <laughs> but it's, credit? Here? Exactly. <laughs> where's, where's the 27 cents you owe me from that? But it's a love, it's a love letter to being a kid. And so much of my, me being a kid, what was nice about it was MTV and, and Prince. Yeah. <laughs> and finally four ghosts. Oh man. That song is about, it's about a couple that has an affair and it's, you don't realize that when you, when that happens, it doesn't just disrupt your two selfish lives. It disrupts other people's lives too. And in this case, both of these people that had an affair were also married. So they're selfish, they're fucked up, but it also destroyed their partner's lives. And so ideally, if a relationship has run its course, you know, you end the relationship with dignity before you move on. But what happens is you you cause this fissure and you destroy yourselves, but it also destroys those other two people. So that's who the four ghosts are. And the, the I love the first, the whole first verse is about being in, an, being in a house that's full of empty rooms and uh, that used to be full of furniture and life and paintings and art on the walls and how all the windows and doors are locked, but the, they, you know, they used to be yours. Those used to be your rooms. And now they're just, it's just a house full of ghosts now. Uh, amazing. So do you have any final thoughts for our episode? And <laughs> how can people reach you if they want to connect? I've probably talked enough. Everyone's probably tired of me. No, no, no. I disagree. I disagree. Oh boy. Um, I'm on all the socials, but I don't post much. But yeah, Clint Wells and uh, Metal Up Your Podcast, of course. It's on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, I tour with Morgan Wade. And we're going to be, we're doing an acoustic tour this spring all over America. And then we're doing three months with Alanis Morissette this summer. Probably coming to a city near you with... Uh, with Joan Jett also. So they're calling it the uh, the Three Moons Tour. It's got this cool, um, you know, female power, kind of witchy, you know, the the three sister moons taking their badass music to the world. It's it's a very cool tour. I'm really stoked to be on it. Big Alanis Morissette fan and uh, big fan of her band members. Really, really a great band. And so I don't know much about Joan. I, I hope to get to know her and her team. But yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Or I'm at home watching scary movies, reading Raymond Carver, and uh, dreading the end of being a dad. Oh, and watching the Mavs. <laughs> oh hell yeah, if the Mavs are on. That's all I'm doing. I'll I'll reschedule things to watch the Mavs, even though we're not good and they they're 82 regular season games. I watch every game. <laughs> Thank you so much, Clint. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you.